0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host... Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air. 709 273 5211 Elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, so check in with the Newfoundland Growlers on their first road trip of the season. They got a split in Reading versus the Royals with a 6-4 victory yesterday. That's their first road win of the season. Big night for a couple of the lads. Nolan Dillingham scored his first and his second pro goals in that one. And Johnny Tachonic he had a 5-point night. That's a career record for a defenseman representing the Growlers. He had a goal and four assists. So they're off to Utah on uh, Wednesday to take on the Grizzlies. And congratulations to five uh, major midget hockey players from this province who participated in the Monctonian Challenge and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League Prospects game. So these are the most bright prospects that have a chance to play in the Quebec League uh, coming up in their pending draft. So Ethan Percy, William Morgan, Nathan Pilgrim, Reid Chafe, and Gavin Connors, all five lads got to play in that game, so congratulations to them. Exciting times for those boys. All right, and check in in uh, Langley, B.C., where Mon Memorial Seahawks are playing in the Canadian National Championships, rugby championships close to a podium best finish ever for the Atlanta canadian university in the nationals memorial came up a little bit short in the bronze medal game they lost to the guelph griffins 38 to 12 but pretty tremendous effort from the boys a man of the match in the bronze medal game for uh, memorial was lucas shortle and winger jack mccarthy named to the first team all-star list while second row finbar brown and number eight seamus goodyear were named to the second team all-star list good run for the boys nice finish for them and for the dozens or maybe hundreds, of CFL fans. What a thriller last night. I tell you what, the Grey Cup generally produces a far better game than the Super Bowl. Dave's given the thumbs down okay. So, yesterday, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Montreal Alouettes. The Blue Bombers, overwhelming favorites. Montreal has had a wild season. They were taken over by the league uh, in February, then sold to a local businessman, Pierre-Carl Pellido, recently. They won their last eight games, so they're coming in riding pretty high, but the Bombers, everyone had the Bombers. Uh, don't look any further than Cody Fajardo, 19 yard T-Day pass to Tyson Philpot with uh, 15 seconds remaining to take the game 28-24. Absolute thriller, Dave. Regardless of your thumb position. Good stuff. And in tennis. So, Canada is the defending Davis Cup champions. We won the uh, Davis Cup last year for the first time in history. We go back to defend it coming up starting, I think it's tomorrow in Spain. Canada has Finland in the first round. So, this is the last eight teams. This is the championship round for the Davis Cup. All right, sporting related matter fun opportunity for students in uh, grades four to six, right across the province, as the Canada Summer Games for 2025, they're looking for a mascot. So you can either pick an object, an animal, a character, They'd like it for it to identify with the identity, culture, and heritage of St. John's or the entire province. So you're going to have to submit the artwork, suggested mascot name, and provide a backstory for the mascot that you're suggesting or proposing. So the winner of the contest will receive a Canada Games prize pack, a class party, a visit from the official 2025 Games mascot, and an opportunity to be a torchbearer at the Canada Games torch relay. So you can just go to the 2025 Canada Games mascot challenge page for more information. I'm sure that'll be very popular amongst the students between grades four and six, now we also know regarding schooling, the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association has arrived at a tentative agreement with the provincial government. No real details are af- afforded to the public as of yet. Teachers will get an opportunity to vote electronically between December 5th and the 7th. Then we'll get some idea about what this includes. So the NLTA represents a huge swath of uh, administrators and uh, educators, some 6,500. So they have landed a tentative agreement with the province. Let's keep going with some uh, tentative agreement or pardon me, collective bargaining. So some 650 unionized Newfoundland Labrador Hydro employees have accepted a new contract with their employer. So inside of that world of 650, there's power line technicians, folks who operate the power generating stations and substations, and include some administrative employees, represented by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 1615. So the workers had been looking for parity with their counterparts throughout Atlantic Canada. They're calling it the Atlantic Adjustment. And apparently that's been achieved. So the remuneration will be increased by roughly 5% during the contract, which expires in 2026. It also comes with the $2,000 signing bonus. So, of course, we hear a lot of that conversation regarding, you know, parity and similar rates of pay and benefits with whoever you're working, your counterparts might be throughout the rest of Atlantic Canada. There is going to be retroactive pay as well because their contract expired in 2022 so there was three separate collective agreements the uh, approval rate was over 75% for those three but it does not include some 80 union members that work out at Holyrood so the concept there is that with the uncertainty of the future of the Holyrood thermal generating station I guess Hydro was resistant to give them the label of full-time employees versus their uh, part-time or pardon me their tentative employee status but they get full-time benefits then they go on to talk about what we all know is trying to see what the future for Holyrood looks like. So, one of the arguments, as we're all painfully aware, for Muskrat Falls will see the decommissioning at Holyrood and the puking black smoke that goes with it. So all hands agree now, the Holy Road and its 490 megawatts is still gonna be in place at least until 2030. Now hydro continues to go through the recommendations brought forward by Hatch as to what to do about supply with the increased demand that's forecasted in the future. People have latched on very clearly to the recommendation from Hatch that there be a 150 megawatt generator, diesel generator stationed at Holyrood, but there's a lot to this, right? So with the big investment out of beta to spare, $527 million for an eighth generating unit, and the money's to keep Holyrood up and running. And most importantly, I think, is if we're going to see some pending approvals for wind, hydrogen, ammonia prospects, we don't even know, and nor is Holyrood, uh, pardon me, Hydro really sure how that power is gonna be provided, and what that interaction looks like with the grid. We're told it's on their dime, we don't know what the commercial rate will be, we don't know about the concept of uh, any of these wind plays selling back to the grid, but there is a contract in place for those 650 unionized NL Hydro employees. And here comes a really important pending collective bargaining negotiations. So apparently NAEP represents some uh, 4,000 home care workers in the province. And remember, home care was a big part of the senior's advocate, Susan Walsh, and her report on seniors and trying to combat poverty. Newfoundland and Labrador is one of only six provinces or territories that has a copay system in place. So when we talk about, for instance, in BC, if you're receiving federal assistance, then you get free home care. There's big conversations happening here and across the country about how seniors will age and the concept of aging in place. That can only be achieved if we have the required number of home care workers to do exactly that. So they're talking about the need to be more uh, respected and appreciation for the important work they do, and yes, absolutely how they get paid and how much they get paid. So that set of negotiations will really tell the tale. You know, if it keeps the home care workers that are already in place content with their relationship with their employer, and what will it mean for making it an attractive option for people moving into the workforce or trying to maybe change their career path? Because if we're going to continue to lean on institutionalizing seniors in long-term care facilities, we're probably not doing the best we can for seniors themselves and for the system and the cost-benefit analysis. So this upcoming uh, collective bargaining will be a big, big deal. So we'll keep our eyes peeled on that. If you want to talk about home care in any particular avenue, we can do exactly that. And we can dig into the Seniors uh, Advocates Report about poverty because the numbers were alarming. Just one more time, it's worth keeping on the front burner because the Premier has told us that there will be a poverty reduction uh, uh, policy coming forward for the Province of Seniors in the near future. Here's what it says, based on the 1,000-plus seniors that were uh, spoken with or interviewed by the Advocate's Office, 32% said they couldn't afford to meet their needs, 60% said they go without food, 57% said they cannot purchase medical supplies and devices. So nearly one-third of the province's 65-plus group are struggling financially. So we'll talk about the recommendation to reinstate the food delivery program, and yes, the home care potential issue, and yes, the seniors' benefit and the threshold to qualify for the maximum benefit. So we know there's a lot there, and let's take it on. Just a quick sip of coffee, one second. We're back. Yesterday I had cause to drive past Batimer Park, and the number of people living in the tents between the Colonial Building and the park is really quite something. So this discussion is not going away, and it shouldn't go away. So there will be continued uh, calls on the city, for instance, to offer the bathrooms remain open throughout the evening in Bannerman Park, and maybe for the pool house to be a warming shelter, an ability to get a wash and the like. So while we'll talk about minimum standards in the emergency shelters, which has to be achieved because that's apparently a terrible place to live, the fear of violence and whether or not there's been sexual assault, and then of course, people are trying to kick a drug habit and being surrounded by people using. So there's a lot to it. And there's always been a homelessness issue, but it's been growing substantially in the last couple of years. So the questions will be those, the aforementioned I just put uh, in front of you. And then of course, It's the winter is coming. It was a frosty morning this morning, and it was frosty on my windshield. You can only imagine what it feels like to be living in one of these tents. So there's going to be people clamoring for immediate solutions where they lie, but of course, like most of you, or all of you, the worry about folks who are living in the elements with the winter pending. I mean, winter temperatures are here, so not a whole lot has changed on the front for these people and fingers crossed that there could be solutions found. And then you think back to last week, where the last few days of the uh, House of Assembly's fall sitting, and they only sat for 39 days in total last year, the 40 members of the House of Assembly. On the last day, you get the standard uh, comments coming from the various political leaders, but it did not include Jim Din, the leader of the NDP. The whole issue of his comments being deemed unparliamentary un- and being sanctioned by the Speaker basically he's accused of you know saying that the government lied well Minister Pike, Social Development Minister Paul Pike, when talking about the number of houses that have been built and you know we're always floating around that 750 number when it turns out that it's 11. There's a long way between 11 and 750 Minister Pike says he misspoke. It was only an acknowledgement of misspeaking after it was made publicly known by Arianna Kelland and, uh, and Rob over at CBC so between the minister, the minister's staff, the executive council, the premier's office, other ministers, other bureaucrats, knowing full well that 750 was entirely inaccurate but was uh, said many, many, many times, so Mr. Din sat silent. He doesn't, he, he's not going to apologize, so he says. Now, when we go back to the spring sitting, will Mr. Dins still have that same feeling and thoughts about what he said? And I'll leave it up to you as to whether or not it was fair to accuse the government of lying, but it is clear to me that the risk misrepresentation of the numbers was happening repeatedly, someone knew someone, I'd say many people knew that there's absolutely a problem here with the numbers as they're being portrayed, so we can take it on. This morning, update coming today from Minister Osborne and uh, Deputy Minister Pat Parfrey, Dr. Pat Parfrey, about virtual care. We know very little about the new contract that's been signed. Apparently, it's with an American company, and we know it's going to be launched initially out in New West Valley, but we don't know a whole lot about it. Number one, There will be concerns from the doctors who are currently practicing in the province and offering virtual care is how much they're going to get paid. So they'll harken back to the uh, disparity between how much it costs to call 811 versus how much it costs to be seen by a doctor and the billing towards MCP. So we'll see what happens there. Also, what doctors currently offering virtual care in the province, there's a cap on the numbers of calls and appointments they can take per day. I've never heard any rationale as to why it's capped and I believe that number is at 40. So if this is going to be a bigger part of the offering going forward, then you'd like to think that there's going to be a level playing field. Now some people will say, you know, this is just another example of trying to stake out your territory. But when we have an issue regarding retaining doctors and or recruiting doctors, if there's going to be a further expansion of different pay for private companies, and in this case we think it's an American company, of course that's not going to sit well. So. We'll see what the update includes at some point later today, and we will be there, the VOCM newsroom or the team will be there. And the folks out in Bonavista, the ER has now officially opened. It's been open for a while. So the issue will always remain about the number of healthcare professionals required. So they had that floating target day after day. People would show up, and there'd be a sign on the door as to whether or not the uh, emergency room in Bonavista was going to be open. And of course, if it wasn't, you had to travel to Clarenville, which is about a hundred-ish kilometers from that community. So, on the staffing front, apparently it's a very nice surroundings that have been modern, uh, modernized and updated. There's an opportunity for five doctors to be in place. They currently have three in place and so will be working towards recruiting the other two. So, they've got new area where they receive the patient, triage them in one area, flow them right through to the other. The waiting room is separate, so much more manageable and easier to navigate healthcare facility out in Bonavista. But of course, You know, the town, Uh, let's throw this one back out there. It just popped in my head. You know, you wonder what the role of the municipalities are when it comes to recruiting healthcare professionals. In Bonavista, they made big efforts. You know, they're talking about uh, selling a service lot for little, maybe as little as a dollar, financial incentives put forward by the town of Bonavista. Now, we know whether it be in conversation with Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention, of course municipalities will make an effort to say, here's why it's a good opportunity and a good lifestyle to be had to move to my community as a doctor, a registered nurse, nurse practitioner, LPN, whatever the case may be. But do we think it's a good idea that for those who actually have the resources and the money to put financial incentives in place, or will that further create the issue between pitting one community against each other? Like we currently have in the country with provinces being pitted against each other with outbidding our neighbors to get a healthcare professional. So what do you make of the municipalities and the role they play in the recruitment efforts? All right, a couple of quick federal notes before we get to your call. So, we know that tomorrow there will be a fall fiscal update coming from the federal government. Hold on to your hats for that one. How many times do we have interaction between law enforcement and individuals or groups where it boils down to contradictory statements about how that interaction went? There is nothing quite like, let's go to the tape. Let's see what the camera captured. Back in 2020, there was a big load of money put forward for the federal government to supply uh, body cameras for the RCMP. So it was $238.5 million over six years, and that came out in 2020. They talked about having the program in place by 2021, and here we are in 23, and yet another delay coming. So the plan for the RCMP was to outfit between 10,000 and 15,000 frontline officers in various stages, and now we've got a problem. They ran some field tests over the summer, and the contract was originally awarded to Motorola Solutions Canada. So it was happening in Nova Scotia, Alberta, and Nunavut. So apparently, they had issues. So here we are in 23, and now the rollout won't even happen until 2024 because this is a good idea. Privacy commissioners will have their questions about how this is supposed to work, but there are protocols in place for how the cameras are used. So they're going to be used in uh, including ongoing crime investigations, mental health calls and protests, but it will not be used during intimate searches. The concerns regarding privacy will be, you know, how the information is collected, how it's disseminated and stored, and who has access to it. But I think it's a great idea to have body cameras on not only the RCMP, but also on members of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary as well. You want to take it on? I think it's a good idea. I'm not so sure what you'll think. But anyway, let's go. Last one on the federal front. So big win for the petrochemical companies, big win for the plastic uh, plastic industry. So there was a case brought forward by Responsible Plastic Use Coalition and a bunch of the chemical companies that manufacture plastic. The federal court overturned the federal government's ban on single-use plastics on Thursday. They said that the policy was unreasonable and unconstitutional. Yes, the federal government has to be held uh, to check when it comes to potential overreach. I mean, there's just too much plastic out there. No matter what you think, I suppose if you work in an industry that manufactures plastics, you think we should make more. But plastic is a problem. So we already had some of these uh, bans that have been phased in. And the way the government went about it, is they put plastics on a list called toxic substance in schedule one, and that was inside the Canada Environmental Protection Act. So whether it be plastic bags straws, which frustrates many people, takeout containers, what have you. So now the federal government, uh, via Minister Stephen Gibo, strongly considering appeal. But at this moment in time, that ban on single-use plastics has been overturned by the federal court. Interesting stuff. Unconstitutional. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's kick off the week with a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. While the police in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, have welcomed a new addition to their police force, a three-year-old golden doodle named Napoleon. It's a mental health support dog. We know that earlier this year, I believe it was in February, all of a sudden, Stella, who was an important part of the mental health community with all the activities and events that Stella and Krista Fagan went to, Constable Fagan, all of a sudden, f- with no real rationale offered, they was pulled. So, Chief Roach really hasn't spoken to it much in the way of uh, any detail. And remember, this is not a publicly funded operation. Jim Hines, private businessman, he put all the monies for to bring Stella into the RNC fault. And Jim joined us online at number three. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you?
2: Not
3: too bad, Patty. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a bit fired up about this again today about this whole Stella thing and support, dog. I mean, I looked at the weekend and seen this uh, wonderful uh, program that this canine uh, therapy first responders, I mean, it's a company that's nonprofit, it trains dogs and then free issues them to uh, police forces. and the uh, new Glasgow uh, police force, regional police now have a, a new dog and they get it and they see it, you know. Uh, I see, you know, that, uh, you know, Kristen, Stella are home, do nothing. The vehicle I pay for is parked. not allowed to use that only to take Stella for, you know, uh, uh, playtime or training or or just to go to the bed or something like that. that. You know, if you look at this here, this is truly what community policing is all about. I mean, these people get it. I mean, we got it years ago. Chief Bowling got it. I mean, the government at the time got it but community police and that's what this is all about. This, this new canine going into the the new Glasgow Police Department. I mean it is totally, totally community policing. The community's involved, privately funded, I means sounds so familiar, you know, like all property funded. And you know, Stella when uh, and Krista were doing such amazing work for with you know, the community getting out I mean our community is hurting. I mean the mental health care is on, is not on the incline. It's going straight up. And Stella and Krista were doing so much work. I mean, Stella and Krista went out to the White Rose Project. They had some issues out there with some mental health, and they went out there. I, I personally went along. And then Stella and and Krista and also were invited out to the valley, out in Long Harbor. And it made such an impact, Patty, that, the Valley people came into the RNC headquarters and built Stella's Corner. And Stella's Corner, Patty, was for officers who were not having a good day. I mean, you know, you hear about all these traffic accidents where the road is closed for a long period of time. You don't have to guess what's after happening there. These officers, young police forces, horrendous, horrendous things. And that's what that was put in there and paid for by Valley Inc. Today, that's no more. That, that is now an office for two managers. So, I mean, how would that possibly be right to do that? I mean, how these injured officers are treated by the RNC is, I mean, you can't Google it. You can't Google it and get an answer to how, how they're treated. I mean, if this corner was, was put there for injured officers and now it's no more, and, and, and so if the injured officers are treated that way, how, how reluctant are they going to be to come forward if they are not having a good time? When you see management destroy initiatives put in by the, you know, private people, private funded, it into it. I mean, there's something definitely
1: wrong with all that. It's a very strange set of circumstances. All of a sudden, there was reduced appearances by Stella, and then all of a sudden, every single invitation was rejected in full. You know, in addition to working with employees at Valet or White Rose and or other people, it also, Stella was also used for victims of violence. So whether it be to settle a witness as they pro- make their way to the courts, so there was a lot of different avenues and there people and individuals that Stella and Krista Fagan touched. So for this to not be in place is just sort of bizarre. You know, when asked the Minister of Justice of Public Safety, John Hogan said, the program has not been scrapped. But how do you square that circle? If Stella and Christa Fagan are at home not doing what they were doing and helping the community, if it hasn't been scrapped, what is it, what's the status? How do we label it? Because f- from where I sit, it is no more, consequently, scrapped.
3: Yeah, and Patty, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to reach out to the Justice Minister today. I want to have a personal, in-person in meeting with him to get an update on all this. I mean, you, you can't ask Chief Roachman updates. I mean, he, he's accountable to no one. He's only accountable to people who took him every time and gave him that job. I mean, he's not accountable to no one. He don't talk to no one. He doesn't say anything. But, I mean, the the, the minister needs to explain why this resource is home not out in the community. And what they'll say, you know, all these people, uh, Paddy, they hide behind, just say, well, it's a HR issue, we can't comment on it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's BS. It, it's the it's Chief Roach issue. All these programs that I funded, I mean, I funded, somebody else funded, that makes no difference. All this stuff was torn down by Chief Roach because it was implemented by Chief Bowling, and he was in. I mean, it's as simple as that. You can sugarcoat it all you like. People are not stupid. People know the difference, That, and it's absolutely horrendous what, what we're down here. I mean, and while I'm in there, I'm going to ask him I said, the minister, I said, the equine therapy but the C has said, how many retreats for first responders have been done since uh, Constable Kelsey Mews was pushed out and quit? I mean, they say, well, you know, we, we have... He commented some time ago, well, Wednesday afternoon, 1 o'clock, members can go down there. But, I mean, that's no, that's no breaking revelation there, Patty. Government House is open to the public. Anyone can go in there. But these retreats were you work know, for first responders... Uh, I'd like to know how many people, because, I mean, it's two years now, over two years, must be at least, uh, since he took, took office, must be at least 40, 50 people after going through that. I mean, uh, d- down at the uh, uh, Gullman House down there, this barn down there, I mean, these horses, that was a big thing, equine therapy. But I'd like to know how much of that they're doing right now. They're not, doing, they're not doing very much of anything. These horses, the provincial vets said that these horses had to come out of there, that burn. I provide storage for sawdust and for, 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 for hay outside, so it was better quality. And then he went up to Rainbow Riders where you had indoor arena in the winter and, and, and so on and so forth. All that's trashed, gone. So the, the horses are back in the same barn. So I want to get an update from the minister, too, on what an elaborate ventilation system they put in there, as per the recommendation by the provincial vet, to give a good air quality for these horses. I mean, all this stuff is being torn down, Patty, and the community is suffering. The the, the mental health in our community is 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 just on a scale like, like, like nothing else. I mean, we were way, leading the leading the whole country and how we were doing this community policing, reaching out the community. The RNC had an olive branch going out getting get out in the community understanding me. And it's, it's sad now to see a young police force like that and how people are treated with, uh, with mental health issues within the force and see all this stuff torn down is absolutely shameful.
1: It's all counterintuitive as well. It's not that long ago we were saying one in five Canadians have an issue with their mental wellness. And now we're saying one in four. And at the exact same time, support services, whether it be inside community policing or otherwise, have eroded. It just really doesn't add up. And, Jim, I'm glad you're keeping it on the front burner. And I hope you get that opportunity to have a a personal conversation with Minister Hogan. Because I know it's virtually impossible to have a personal conversation with Chief Roach. So when you have an update, you're more than welcome to join us back on the program.
3: Yes, Patty, and listen, uh, I know that the, they listen to your program on the Hill, so they're hearing what I'm saying here this morning, and they know where this is going. I tell you, and I will say this, and they can all listen to it, too. I'm not letting this go. The community deserves better, and I'm going to make sure they get better. So, I mean, if Chief Broach don't want to, to, to support any of the stuff, pink saw crap, well, maybe he needs to take out his checkbook and, and write me a check for 350000 and I'll give it to a, a lot more charities that are crying up for funds in this community, can better serve people with mental health.
1: Appreciate the time and the effort, Jim. Thanks a lot.
3: Okay, Patty, Thank you.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jim Hines. And, you know, just imagine, the entire program of Stella was covered in full by a private business person, and yet that private investment has now been shelved. When all of the good work that Stella and Constable Fagan have done, I mean, you heard him talk about visits to White Rose and to Valet. I've personally been at fence with Stella. You can see how the public interact with Constable Fagan and with Stella, Portuguese water dog, beautiful animal. It's just so bizarre that that has gone by the wayside for one reason or another. Mr. Hines thinks that it's simply because it was a good idea implemented by then-Chief Boland, and tearing down things implemented by your predecessor, if that's an approach that we're taking, then that's misguided, to say the least. Let's take a break. When we come back, Robinson in the queue to talk about veterans' pensions. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking, Robin. How are you doing? Uh,
2: no, <laughs> well, I was uh, I was doing okay until I uh, got to Centerville and uh, Terrence Rogers' office. I think uh, your office has seen the emails that I'd sent out saying that I would be here for a hunger-thirst medication strike, uh, only to find out that... Uh, he has closed his central office today. Now I'm, I'm I apologize to his staff if uh, if they became stressed out. I understand how they feel. I've been shut out myself, and uh, I can understand. And I apologize, and I hope they're doing okay. However, Terrence didn't uh, didn't respond to me at all in the past week or so stating that he would send or he would have the office open or closed he also uh, sent me a letter on friday which was it looked okay but in reality once i put it on on uh, online people are going to see it and, and uh, not be very impressed with the uh, penmanship let's put it that way anyway i was uh, a couple of months ago you're still there right i'm listening Okay. A couple of months ago, I uh, I was having a real difficult time with uh, stress and uh, things that were going on in my life. I was feeling suicidal, and, uh, you know, it was very difficult when those things happen. And I spoke with my uh, counselor, my psychologist, and I asked Veterans Affairs if I could cash out some of my pension that I get. And they came back and said, no, which is a typical answer from Veterans Affairs. However, they said they don't do that. But we have people cashing out portions or all of their pension every day. And it's a new thing to come out. But I think the reason they brought it out was because it was uh, saving the government money by giving them the cash out uh, because they don't have to pay anymore. I am now 59 years old. And I thought, you know, if I took a cash out of ten or fifteen years worth of my disability pension, that would give me plenty of money to pay off all of my bills. I mean, I have a uh, two lines of credit that I can only afford to pay my interest fees on and that runs with almost a thousand dollars a month. So I was asking for a cash out of a portion and then after 10 or 15 years, they wouldn't have to pay anymore, they would save money. And they again said no. So I contacted the office. He was all in favor of helping out with all that good stuff. And then for some unknown reason, communications started to slow and things were not being done. And of course, when you're a veteran who has been stressed out over things like this all their career I and mean, ever since he retired, uh, they have difficulties in handling what's happening, and you know uh, when you when you want to be able to provide for your family, all the things you want to be able to do right now, instead of carrying on for the next ten, fifteen years, making ends just making ends an meet and bills piling up, uh, it becomes very, very. Uh, what can I say? Interesting to say, well, you know, I have lots of life insurance and most of my bills are insured for life insurance and it would be easier to take that. So I didn't want to do that, obviously. And uh, now I'm sitting in front of Mr. Rogers' office in Centerville looking at the sign that says we're closed today. And when insurance contacted me, he said that the reason it's closed is because I stressed out this worker, and I'm very sorry if she felt that I was attacking anybody. I really, I wasn't. And it it hurts me to know that an office worker goes through that kind of thing because that's what, that's what happened to me throughout my career, right? We've talked about this before. So. Mm-hmm. My mouth has gone so dry right now, Patty, I can hardly move my tongue.
1: Hello. Yes, I'm. I'm just listening, Robin. So, is yes, it is it ever available in any circumstance for people to take a cash out of their disability
2: pension? Yes, they're doing it now. Okay. And that's so, why are you being denied yeah. if they are doing it? Because I have the wrong kind of pension. They say. Oh. What's the wrong kind of pension? I have a pension that the World War II people have, I have a pension that everybody that has served in the forces up till 2006 have, and I also have a portion that's came in after two thousand six. Uh I mean what kind of pension are they looking at? One that's gonna save the government money, obviously. And where a young fellow if he was taking a thousand dollars a month for a pension would, you know, incur millions of dollars close, close to a million dollars over, you know, fifty years or forty years. They want that person to take cash out so they don't have to him very much. But I'm at the point now where You know, I'm not going to last much between mid-70s. So all I was doing was hoping that I could get something uh, to help out with now so that I could, you know, with my health issues, I want to be able to enjoy the rest of my little life till I got left. And to be denied that is, you know, it's it's almost as bad as we ever had with uh, dealing with veterans. And this all happened during Veterans Week. You know, it's ridiculous. The, the, the minister's office wouldn't even answer, wouldn't even open my emails. I knew they got them because I put a request for sheet on, on my emails. They they answered the first couple, and then after that, they just said, pff, they wouldn't even answer it. So, you know, imagine how, how you'd feel if you were trying to contact your ELCM boss and say, you know, I want to talk to you, and they just ignore you, knowing that you have mental illness and Physical illnesses and anyway, buddy. Well, I'm at, I'm at the I'm at the point now, and my wife is in charge now. She's gotten Well, she's going to drive me, but we're going to go to Gandon, to Clifford Small's office, and maybe the Conservatives do something. Make no bloody wonder that you know everybody is getting is up against the, the Liberal government. They started out great. I mean, they put a lot of stuff back in for us veterans. But then as the year went by, it was, oh, uh, we've done enough. <laughs> Hopefully nobody will uh, get upset. Well, I tell you, there's one guy who's upset who stood up for them for years with veterans in, in, in all across the, the country on Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And to do this, they could have phoned me on Friday and said, look, our our worker won't be in. Would you like to go to Clarenville? Because that's where I'm going tomorrow, by the way. Okay. I'm going to the smallest office this afternoon, or after this, I get off the line. No more, I'm going to Clarenville. And they're right between McDonald's and Tim Hortons. So what a view that's going to be with a veteran sitting in the back of his truck, on a chair, doing a hunger strike, and a medicine strike, and a thirst strike, and I, I can hardly... Oh, Talk now, because my world has gone so dry that what do we have to do—die in public for somebody to see—that we need help TO? I mean, it is ridiculous.
1: I read a bit of your book, I believe it was called A Soldier's Mask, uh, there was some while back, and you know, to hear your stories and what other veterans have gone through since they've left after active duty is simply not good enough, and we all know it to be true. You know, we'll talk about defense spending and 2% the GDP, but what we don't talk about enough is what happens after duty, and Robin, right. I'm, I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. If you have any satisfaction with Mr. Small or with anybody else at the uh, uh, Parliament level, you're more than welcome to join us on the program, and I do appreciate the uh, emails you sent along.
2: And I thank you very much, Patty, because I know that there's a lot of people in this province that are are good liberal supporters. and I mean, I know uh, I'm an NDP supporter, but I support the liberals when they do the right thing. But what happened here this morning shows me that even the liberals can stand up and kick veterans in the face. And I tell you right now, I feel like I was kicked in the stomach. And... I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. But anyway, thanks, Patty, and uh, I'll contact you sometime in the week and let you know where was
1: you're going. I appreciate your time. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thanks,
2: Patty. Go thanks, luck. Robin. All right.
1: Uh, getting a few emails this morning, you know, we're always going to talk about wind energy, and Dave is actually in the queue to talk about exactly that. Tom's there to talk about what's happening on Bombay Bulls Road. We'll have a conversation about Tent City, ferry service, and whatnot. But as I had a conversation last week with one of the representatives of Protect NL, which used to be the Southwest Coast Alliance, and this is regarding their questions, concerns, and or opposition to any of these projects, specifically on the Port of Port Peninsula. One of the conversations was around infrasonics. We have tried to connect with people who have done academic research in the field. As I told Brenda last week, I was going to do some reading over the weekend, which I did, and most every conclusion in some of the scientific journals, was that the impact was negligible. That doesn't mean we're going to dismiss it in full. We'll talk about it and whatever else you want to talk about right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Melissa. You're on the air.
4: Good morning.
1: Welcome to the show. What's on your mind?
4: So I'm calling because uh, I'm one of the residents in Tent City. And... um. We're just pretty much calling because, like, it's getting colder, and it's like we're gonna freeze dead out. there. something gotta happen. Somebody gotta budge. Like, most of us got housing papers, like housing forms done out. Like, I see, I go around town, I see all of them baking housing buildings. I see all of them baking. Buildings where nobody or no business is in it. I don't know why they can't open one of them buildings for us until we get somewhere. Like, it's getting really cold. Just people that are very really sick. People are dying with the flu. Like, it's getting really bad. And someone got a budge. like...
1: Melissa, if they opened up one of the buildings, for instance, do you think it would very quickly become just like what people are seeing in emergency shelters, of which you and many don't want to spot it in a shelter, given some of the violence and sexual assaults and drug use and whatnot?
4: Most of us don't want to be in shelters. Um, I find most of the shelters are really bad, but the organizations... We have the workers we have working with us. The volunteers we have working with us. They would, if one of the buildings would be open up, they would be, we would still be homeless and it would only be a temporary thing. And that would be, I guess, run from our volunteers. And it would be made sure that the drugs and alcohol would not be there.
1: Melissa, have you spent time in an emergency shelter?
4: I have. I spent time at the gathering. I was... Physical and mentally abuse, sexual and physical abuse. A uh, couple other shelters i was seen up on Lacko, Uh It was not fit because of rats running all over the place. So that's why... I actually went public about uh the last place I was in I went public about the conditions and I had they pretty much kicked me out because I went public about how bad it really was in that personal shelter that the government pays 350 dollars a night for
1: Melissa, and feel free not to a- answer this question if you don't want to, and I'm not trying to be personal, but what help us understand the circumstances in your life that have led you to be homeless and now living in a tent behind the Colonial Building.
4: Um, so what made me become homeless was uh, my uh, partner ended up in jail. I never got on a lease in time, and they evicted me, and then when he got out of jail, his apartment was already gone.
1: How long have you been outside? How long have you been been, homeless?
4: I have been homeless now for altogether almost. Well, my little boy is almost two. So I have been homeless on and off for two years. And where was your your son? I had to uh, put my son up for adoption due to I had nowhere to live and I was not willing to help. So I had to make a decision and put him up for adoption.
1: Describe the conditions in where in the tent city where you are now currently living. I read a story this morning about it. You know, we'll talk about the dangers of violence and abuse and drug use and what have you in the mercy shelters. What are you seeing in that this mini tent encampment? What are the circumstances like? Are you seeing violence and the like?
4: There is some violence in me, but not at our tent site. Uh, some people do get pretty emotional, like, we're living outside and we're not used to it but I don't see many violence. Only when other people is coming that don't live there that comes to cause trouble. Um, we are close to a park so you do get some teenagers coming by and screaming and yelling and telling telling you like, oh you're homeless because it's a choice. No, homeless is not a choice. Homeless is, is because of a lot of people got this uh, three-month non-eviction. No, Notice. Um, that's a lot of people I'm seeing that's with us now is mostly due to this three month non eviction notice. The only way we are really gonna fix this is if we take this three month non eviction notice out. Landlords are realizing at them day and age instead of waiting six months to raise your rent, they are realizing uh, I have a young girl, not going to say her name, that told me that she got three-month eviction because her landlord realized he could use people from other parts to get more money. While she was paying 800 a month, he now has to Ukrainian family for 1600 a month. So landlords are realizing and using Ukrainians pretty much... They're using them to get more money. So they're realizing they can get more and they're evicting people to get more. It should be a cap on rent and change the no eviction notice. Because if we're only paying 800 a month to 900 a month, why do the landlords at the charge of 600, $1,600 dollars or something we're only paying 900 for?
1: Melissa, what are you doing for food?
4: Uh, We are pretty much getting donations. If anybody wants to donate, they can. We are in need of a nice few things, coffees, barfaces. We are desperately in need of more tents. Um, We are at the Benjamin location, Benjamin Park, the corner building. We are desperately in need of new tents. We uh, are having two and three people a day coming that needs places. We literally have people buck. Uh, I have a brother, a brother and brother buck in one tent, in a one two-man tent, not big enough. I have a couple right now that I had to put into a one and a two-man tent, because we don't have big enough tents, and we're getting more people by today.
1: Melissa, before I let you go, do you have a, a social worker assigned to you? Do you, do you have that?
4: Yeah, um, we're dealing with housing, but it don't seem like it's going anywhere, but we are dealing with housing. Most of us got housing papers done out.
1: And, of course, the wait time for a, a, a unit regarding uh, Newfoundland-Labrador housing is long. and we It's know
4: long, not- and I, okay. l- I look at it as I walk by. Places that I know is housing, and I see all of them, they can build abandoned houses, board up houses, when they could be getting them done and taking the people off the streets.
1: Melissa, I wish you well. We'll keep following the story and talking about it, and hopefully whether it be minimum standards and shelters will make them safer places and uh, better options for people because it's never going away, but the way they're currently structured and the lack of oversight and monitoring and the danger is obviously very real. And with the most recent... uh, There's
4: always going to be somebody homeless.
1: There is. Regardless of how hard we try, there will be people that fall through the cracks. I I wish you well, Melissa. Take good care of yourself.
4: Thank you. Everybody wants to donate. You guys are more than welcome to donate, tents or anything.
1: Stay in touch, Melissa. Be well.
4: We will. Thank you. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye. You know, even when the uh, housing announcement last week by the provincial government, and it will be built, of course, you know it's built by the private sector, but the rents will be uh, put forward by the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, which is one of the things that's missing in some of the other housing announcements, is how we ensure that it's affordable on the other end. Uh, Dave, you, yeah, okay, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Verna, you're on the air. Hi, Verna.
5: Hi. I'm just calling in regards to the Bell Island Ferry Service situation mm-hmm. and the Bell Island uh, the hospital. Right now we're down to uh, uh, one and a half boats, we'll call it. The Legionnaire's gone to uh, the harbour to have some work done on it. Last weekend was the same thing. They took the boat and had to go for repairs. All of a sudden this week, they announced Thursday the boat was going on Friday. It would be back sunday uh Sunday announced that it's not going to be back now to the middle of the week uh the beaumont on um, the weekend that was uh down because of the weather situation, of course, so it was in the cove and uh, yesterday morning uh the boat couldn't run because of the weather, and our hospital for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we had it closed from eight p.m. to 8 a.m. each day. So yesterday, of course, because the boat wasn't running, we had no hospital situation either. So we had no hospital open, we had no boat running, and, you know, our situation, when our hospital's close, we have to call the ambulance service, and they come and assess, and they take you over to St. John's for health care. We had no health care. We had no transportation. What kind of plan in motion are they ever going to come up with? Or are they ever going to come up with it? You know, the people deserve better. They are playing with people's health.
1: Yeah, it when it, as, it comes to, as it relates to the ferry issue, I'm never really sure what to say when there's a need for uh, dry dock services for the Legionnaire or any other ferry in the province, but when it comes to healthcare, remind me what happened, because if I remember correctly, there was a quasi grand seduction in place, and there was an effort to keep a doctor who had long been on Bell Island and wanted to stay on Bell Island, but there was some issue regarding the contract or the number of hours he wanted to work or something, I can't remember what happened, but what happened with that particular doctor? You know who I'm talking uh, about,
5: Doctor AR. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, of course, he left uh, because of—I'll call it politics—because that's basically what it is. Uh, if you do and you, you do what they say, to what they want. Whether it's going to be beneficial to the people and to you, it doesn't matter. So what happened was when he left, uh, a term come up and he came back. So he wanted to renegotiate, wanted to talk to them. And what basically it was, he was saying to them, look, guys, I can come back and I can take on all my clients that I had, my patients, and I'll be there Monday to Friday. For the people, which you're going to get, you know, four hundred and fifty to five hundred people taken care of. But I cannot work Monday to Friday, weekends, and, ev- and evenings because it's only going to be a burnout for me, and the people are going to suffer because I can't give them a hundred percent. No, we want on the weekends. We want you in the evenings, and we want you in the daytime. Whereas if he were to come. A locum would have been eliminated in the days, whereas now we need the locums during the days mm-hmm. because we don't have the we don't have the doctors. And again, in regards, to, I'm sure doctors are looking at Bell Island, We now have come up with a solution to offer a doctor to come back here to give him the home he ha- he deserves. The and battle line is we have a boat situation that we don't have management that's running it. There's no plan in motion. They're, they're not being active, proactive, or using common sense. I mean, they knew that the boat was going on Thursday, Well, which we didn't know. And another example is VOCM. I don't know how you guys found out before us this morning, but uh, you guys were advertising that uh, the boat would be going for uh, to be uh, fuels. We didn't know that
1: well, I guess it's a good thing you tuned in to hear Jerry Lynn talk about the uh, Legionnaire this morning. I heard that as well. Uh, Verna, very quick last comment to you before I go to the news break
5: uh, basically you know i I know Dave is will be leaving in December. What's going to happen to Bellano?
1: I appreciate your time Verna
4: and I appreciate you too take good Have care a great day. you too bye bye
1: all right uh tom and dave you stay right there wind energy water sewer whatever you want to talk about right after this don't go away
0: every saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin the cabin party with brian o'connell saturday night starting at 7 p.m on vocm welcome back to the show let's keep rolling line number four good morning tom you're on the air good morning patrick
6: how are you this morning? great today thanks how are you doing Thanks, great. Uh, Patty, before I get to my topic, I was listening to that veteran there with the issues of trying to get a payout on his pension. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a retired uh, finance officer from the military. I've never heard of pensions being paid out, but it's been a while since I retired. But aside from that, you know, I understand the man's facing some difficulties, but uh, I would encourage him to seek some alternate routes. because once, once he gets a payout, if indeed he Achieves it, what's he going to live on then? Uh, I would assume that's his main source of income. So, you know, there's the, there's the benevolent societies that the military has to help people in need, so maybe he should reach out to one of them uh, before he, he does the drastic step of trying to cash out his pension. Uh, that's not why I'm calling. Uh, Patty, uh, I live on Babel's Road in, uh, in St. John's here. And I'm not sure if you remember uh, when Andy Wells was mayor, a bunch of people before my time of living here would, would attend city council meetings and uh, they would be protesting about the lack of services that we had in this area, particularly water and sewer and those things. Uh, and uh, it made the news every time there was a meeting because they were in the gallery. Uh, but since then, um, when Andy was mayor, there was a a grant of money that came from the federal government to provide water and sewer s- services for us. Uh, that didn't happen because uh, according to people who lived here longer than I have, the money was moved at Cameron road. People were told that we would get what we're supposed to be getting later when the tax base built up on Cameron road. Uh, since then, of course, uh, we remain without water and sewer services. And three years ago, the federal government said to the city of St. John's, you can no longer pump raw sewage into Shoal Harbor, you have to bring it to the pumping station. So as a result, they had to connect to the, to the main system, which meant those of us in the Bay Bulls area had our, all the our things torn up. And for the last three years, that's what we've been dealing with. Uh, uh, we were notified we'd get water and sewer. Uh, a few months after the notification they told us no you won't be getting any water which was probably our most desperate need because we all have surface wells and the farmers surround us and they spread their manure they were here longer than us and they will continue to do it and i have no objection to that uh but we're not getting water and sewer and not getting the water and uh, anyway the uh uh, since then since this construction started three years ago a lot of people have lost their water and the city had to pay for the uh, digging of five artesian wells I think it is so today that 25 thousand bucks a pop uh, after having been pumped water for for the whole year or having water delivered to them and when we thought all was said and done about three or four months ago here we go again with the whole process being dug up again on the ditch side, because everybody down the road from us is being flooded. And uh, what the problem is now, of course, when they rebuilt the roadbed and put all the crushed stone down, all of the water that uh, that was normally running through the ditches is now running under the road. And as I stand here now in my, my garage, looking across the street, looking at a generator, size of a small shed with a six inch pump hooked to it pumping water now this has been one big major screw-up and i can't understand why the city is not letting us know what's going on or why somebody is not being held accountable for this mess that's been happening and i'm sorry for the ramble here but that's that's what's been going on here
1: And then, you know, you expand that to the story we're hearing from people out in Calgary, for instance, need some of that infrastructure put in place just to see it done and then open up their mailbox with a a bill for thousands of dollars. So there's not exactly a level playing field.
6: No, and that's what we're hearing. One of my neighbours was so poisoned with all of this. She's actually sold her house. And before the deal could close, there was a $7,000 bill she got from the city saying, this is what you have to pay for this now. The federal government provided $10 million to this project. And for the second time, they provided money. And we haven't got our bills yet, but when we do, I'm putting the city on notice, we're going to end up in court. For three years, we've had just nothing but disruption. When I left my driveway this morning, uh, I had a a five-minute wait to get out of my driveway, waiting for the traffic to clear. And I know you can't hear it now, but as I was saying, this big generator is going 24-7 at the end of my driveway. But what's probably the most upsetting about all of this is that we're not hearing a single word from City Hall. You know, you think you could put a little flyer out or make a press release or send us a little notice saying, guys, you know, this is what's happening. This is why all this construction is going on. Uh, and nothing, not a, word, not a word from anybody. I find it amazing, absolutely amazing. And, uh, and then sitting here, Saying, "Oh well, I guess you can expect to get a bill soon for this." Uh, crazy, you know. And I, I know I, I'm venting here, but I don't know who to vent to because I know these people may be listening and maybe they will they'll pay attention to this and let us know what the situation is. So,
1: I appreciate the time and the vent, Tom. You're always welcome. <laughs>
6: Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening.
1: You're welcome. Take good care. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, uh, let's see here. Let's keep going. Line number six. Dave, you're on the
7: air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. How are you to say, How are you to this first day of the week? Top shelf this morning. How about yourself? Not bad at all, sir. I've decided to come to the airways with something probably a little different than you're used to hearing regarding the development of windmills and hydrogen power on the West Coast. I think the predominant and most... Upfront front so far has been only the, the side of protest, the side of con, so this time you're going to hear a little bit of pro, and we actually have started a uh, pro-support rally that will be taking place next weekend, next Saturday, in support of green hydrogen projects. Not just, obviously, the one here locally with World Energy, but as a sounding board for green hydrogen and green projects of any type province wide because I mean in particular one of the main reasons that I would be for it and only now starting to speak out basically pro has been it's it's taken me a little while of course like for a lot of people to to go forward and research some of the things that I've been hearing regarding the detriment of such projects such as windmills to find that most of what I've heard is complete misinformation, if not direct propaganda, which basically is not routed in strong scientific fact. And any major concern that there was and, and was viably able to be researched, I, I went after it before I formed the opinion that, well, Okay. As as you prior mentioned, there are obviously some uh, – every every project, everything that we do may have some kind of a negligible uh, impact or a side effect, or shall we say, other than the the intended effect, but they're negligible. They're not something that the world has been proceeding forward with that, you know, represents any immediate harm to our health or our way of living or our quality of living it's it's been mostly very propaganda filled type of uh, deterrence that i've witnessed so far some of it if you oppose it and you say contra to it you get some really nasty responses
1: yeah, and I get them, and so be it. You know, when people ask questions, that's all fine and dandy with me because if we don't ask some, if we don't ask all the questions that we might be proceeding with a little bit of a darkness. But you know, the call last week about infrasonics. I did what I said I would do, and I, wrote, I read a bunch of stuff about it over the weekend. And basically, and I mean, the one that I even have right in front of me, the Journal of Acoustical, the Journal of Acoustical Society of America. So they did this research report; it was out in uh, April the second of two thousand and twenty-one, and it talks about negligible health impact regarding low frequency sound and infrasonic. So, you know, while people, that's where I think you know the biggest risk. If we talk about the business model. You know, for starters, that is what it is. and It's not necessarily 100% my responsibility or worry, even though my federal tax dollars are absolutely involved in this project. And yes, we can uh, talk about and understand environmental impact, and environmental impact is part of every single project, regardless of what we're talking about, oil, wind, mining, forestry, whatever, it has an uh, environmental impact. But when we talk about impact on health, I think we should be really careful and make sure that we get the absolute best, most accurate information out there because that would be the one thing where we all would share. If there's a legitimate health concern regarding whatever the case may be, oil or wind or forestry or these wind projects, then we all would share those concerns. But I really think we should be extremely careful when we talk about health and make sure we're on the right track because that would be one thing that would scare everybody if there was a big health risk.
7: Certainly, and the misinformation usually forms people's ability to either accept or reject, you know, like projects such as this. What I've found throughout my research and my and my looking at this industry is that the absolute worst-case scenarios would have been in the very first days. And when these things were plos, cl- placed in close proximity, like I mean, sometimes they were right in people's rate backyards, within a couple hundred feet, and whatever. The old style of of, uh, of wind generator did re- emit a fair number of EMFs and this type of thing, or whatever. So the argument could be made at that time. What World Energy and others have done, and I think provincial legislation has provided the exact basic things that are required would be a setback or buffer zone so that these things are not placed right upon you and they certainly aren't there's a much i think pretty much the, the closest one to any proximity to to households or whatever is roughly a kilometer away most of what you read that would downplay placement of these things Predates 20, I think it was 2011, was some of the things that I had actually written that were on basically the old technology, which has evolved. And of course, not having changed my mind one bit until I was ready to accept what I would be promoting as something as great for us to do. If we look at our regional challenges that we face now in terms of population, demographics, well, we're certainly living in a in an aged economy where our workforce availability in Western Newfoundland has certainly uh, depleted. We we're looking at now roughly over past 10-12 years, we've seen a drop in like 35% of administrative services employment, 32% in, in finance insurance jobs, uh, then declined by 29% in, in, in other common sectors. And I mean, the aggregate effect of that is that with our aging demographic, that being um, right now I think our mean average age is like 54 to to 60 years of age or something, that the impact on the workforce is that we're aging out. We we have to try and change that because not only will that get worse as time goes, as people move away and there's, you know, less younger people around retraining and taking on things that they could help to keep them here, we still have too much reliance on seasonal industries and and many much of that those industries are away in other parts of the world so we're also dependent upon economies and industries and how they operate in other places that are somewhat out of our reach that our aging demographic are very much attached to and and, and you know this is this is not only about progress for our region as a lot of people will say, oh, you're just in it for the money, or so many business people is after this for the money. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not only about progress. This is also about regress, having to see the things that are getting more challenging for government to pay for for us, uh, i.e., health care, education, uh, keeping up our aging infrastructure that's out there, such as our roads and our bridges and everything else. They need people working. They need people paying taxes, they need corporate citizens like World Energy and others that will be setting up island-wide, paying into provincial, um, you know, like royalty regimes and whatnot that benefit every region of Newfoundland, and we look to the future because the availability of hydrogen sets us up for such things as what we're about to see countrywide like we could potentially look at an industry in terms of using hydrogen and mini grids uh, in from remote communities that are getting very expensive to live there, very expensive for anything that's fossil fuel, uh, hydroelectricity related. It's, it's absolutely gone through the roof. People can't afford to live in these remote communities. Well, the availability of hydrogen systems, mini grids, could change a lot of that. And that would affect places for us, especially like in northern Labrador, beyond that in the northern territories and whatnot and open up the opportunity for industry for us all. I mean, I would not be for anything, Patty, that was untowards and immediately dangerous to the general population or something where you're risking your health for a bit of benefit financially. I've looked at it. Last week, a group of us got together and we decided, well, No one issue really should have any just but the one side put out there, and that's pretty much all we'd seen to this point. We tested the waters. And
1: I, I do have to get to the break, but I mean, it's really important, port-to-port, specifically that we hear as much negative pushback as we do. Down on the Buren Peninsula, they seem to be quite pleased with the consultations they've had with Everwind. Folks in the Exploits Valley Group and the hub that would be bowed, all extremely optimistic that it will indeed come to pass. Again, I do think the fact that people have an understanding or history with uh, John Risley and doing business in this province, I think that kind of drives at least some of it. I don't know if it's most of it or all of it, but certainly some of it. So, in other parts of the province really not that level of concern. Port of Argentia, come by chance. Haven't heard the kind of pushback we're hearing from Port of Port, but so be it. And so be it for people who want to be putting forward the pro side of the story, the pro side of the economic, uh, certainly the economic upside. It won't be huge, but it'll be something. Uh, Last word, Dave, because I do have to get going.
8: Well,
7: I guess like most regions in Newfoundland, because of the way times change and needs arise, THAT WE HAVE A NEED FOR STRONG PRIVATE SECTOR INVESTORSHIP IN OUR REGION. WE CAN'T RELY UPON OUR GOVERNMENT uh, TO PROVIDE EVERYTHING AND ESPECIALLY AT TIMES WHEN EVERYTHING FROM THE AVAILABLE TAX DOLLARS TO THE AMOUNT OF PEOPLE PAYING INTO THAT SYSTEM IS CHALLENGED. WE GOT TO CHANGE THAT AND WE GOT TO CHANGE IT FOR THE BENEFIT OF GENERATIONS COMING BEHIND US. IT'S NOT ALL ABOUT US HERE RIGHT NOW.
1: APPRECIATE THE TIME, DAVE.
7: Thank you so much, Patty, and uh, throughout the week I'll be back probably, if you don't mind, just to update and inform as to when this massive rally that it looks like is going to be should take place. It's Next Saturday, I think the time set is 2 o'clock. I'll have to check with others, but okay. it's a show of, of support. Appreciate the time. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Doing okay. How you doing?
9: Not too bad. It's getting a little colder. Um, you heard from, we all heard from Melissa this morning. I, I actually saw her this morning. She's one of the residents there of Tent City, and she's wondering why nothing's being done by government. And I'm basically calling to say the same thing. I'm, I'm very disappointed. I'm embarrassed. Um, we see other places, other locations who are taking action and we're not seeing that here.
1: So, not taking action in what form? Because I saw your post about Halifax, and you have know, read uh, different papers from across the country with how different municipalities are dealing with it. You know, it varies. In Cranbrook, BC, they're making people haul down the tents during the day and put them back up at night. In Halifax, they've actually set aside specific areas and providing more wraparound services. So you're, we're not going to be able to create permanent units as quick as required so what are you suggesting need be done and could be done uh, sooner than later
9: well in Halifax you know the, the municipality is taking garbage delivering water um, providing areas that are uh, that are set you know sections of parks and sections of the city that where tents can set up they've kind of just basically you know realized that this is an issue that's not going away Um, And we haven't got there yet. So uh, I'd like to see the city do something. Um, Obviously, you know, Bannerman Park is there and the washrooms are there. And there are issues that have come with that in terms of security. I think somebody tried to burn it down. Some kids tried to burn it down. And there's been graffiti and and things like that damage. Um, But, you know, at some point we have to kind of realize, like, you know, this is not an issue that's going to go away necessarily. You can't. Uh, you know even if the uh, like other places if the RNC were to go in and remove these tents they 're just going to pop up somewhere else and they are they are elsewhere they 're in different parts of the city i 'm hearing reports of people set up in different parks and in different neighborhoods and hiding away in ditches in Kenmount Road I think you 've had a few calls there uh, about uh, about that so you know it 's time to actually do something. <sighs>
1: Is there a legitimate point being made when they talk about keeping bathrooms open overnight and or opening up the pool house as a warming shelter? Because you and I, unfortunately, both know the stories regarding fires and damage and uh, graffiti and the rest. So when the city comes back with that pushback, do you acknowledge that that's happened in the past or you say it's something oh. we have to disregard given the humanitarian concerns that we're, we're talking about?
9: No, I, I, I understand the concern, but at some point, you know, our, our humanity has to outweigh that, um, whether it's opening the bathrooms or finding something else. We can't even get a straight answer. You know, we uh, through the jigs and the reels. I think John Abbott was asked, you know, as infrastructure, transportation infrastructure minister, and this is happening in his district, you know, can you place a port-a-potty there? And the government can't even place a port-a-potty. So, you know... Uh, Is the mayor going to step in? Is is council going to step in? Is uh, Jamie Korob going to step in as uh, public works lead to determine, you know, can we can we get some infrastructure uh, for the folks at Tent City, whether it's a bathroom, a warming shelter, wherever that may be? Um, or uh, you know some of the supports that we're seeing other communities uh, provide, and I think like one of the one of the interesting examples that we're seeing pop up around Canada is uh, you know Peterborough's built fifty homeless shelters. They're putting that together very 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 quickly. So could that happen? In, you know in one of the government or city owned parking lots around the city. Um, could they quickly put that kind of thing together or do we have to do this on our own and uh, you know we're, i guess the 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 ticking time bomb here is that that we, winter's coming for one and we're not we're not seeing a response at all and people are going, somebody's going to freeze
1: And this is not new, and it just makes me, I don't know, guess frustrated, I'll say. When, you know, when government officials talk about these issues, and yes, we had some sort of misspeak, misrepresentation, or lie told by a public, pardon me, a a social minister about the number of units that have been attended to, you know, it gave people a sense that we were headed in a much better direction, when in fact we're not. It's been sluggish, to say the least. Announcements are good, actions are much better, and we're nowhere near where we need to be. you just factor in the affordability issue you know I think the province was on the right track last week with their announcement regarding private sector build private sector landlords but the rent will be set at affordable rates by the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation and I am interested in seeing what the auditor general comes up with when she does her audit her and her team do the audit of how that housing stock has been managed Uh, I'll give you the final thoughts this morning Mark what would you like to say
9: yeah, I think, um, I think the, the mid and long term stuff is, you know, we're on the right track in, to some degree and we can have our, our uh, disagreements or arguments about, you know, how that might work, what might happen after five years to that housing, that affordable housing stock. Is a private sector developer going to just determine, hey, this isn't working and we're going to get rid of it? Um, you know, this, this kind of thing probably needs to be locked in. So the mid, mid and long term is, is another, a whole other discussion. What I really wanted to call about today was the short term. And we're seeing, you know, we're also seeing, you know, I'm a volunteer down there at Tent City. Um, we're seeing other folks uh, move in, um, uh, folks that are associated with the trucker convoy, freedom movements. um you know, at what point is this going to be uh, taken out of the hands or shared w- with the volunteers that are currently working down there, and taken on by the Red Cross or by the government in order to ensure that people are getting what they need? We're not seeing the harm reduction ban from uh, from the health authority go down there, which we know has uh, somebody from end homelessness um, that you know ensures that everybody's signed up for rental housing, signed up for city housing. Uh, and, and we're not we're not seeing any action in terms of even a, a porta potty. So uh, you know we have a donation. We, we believe we have a donation of a porta potty. We're looking into because you know we're not waiting for government now. We're we're just basically going to do stuff. Um, so you know is that infrastructure? If we place a porta potty down there, is it going to be removed by the RNC? We were told at the Confederation Hill protests that the RNC would simply remove a port potty if it was there. So we want to ensure and I've sent an email out uh, on, over the weekend to government departments, we want to ensure that that infrastructure can stay and if government's not going to do this uh, you know, do we need to start thinking about building these homeless shelters keeping people out of the cold and resolving some of these issues in the, in the very short
1: term. I appreciate the time Mark, thanks a lot. Thanks Patty and if anybody
9: wants to any business owners or any folks that want to get involved uh, want to reach out to me, then uh, they can certainly find me on Twitter or Facebook or or uh, happy to let Dave give them my uh, phone number to get in touch.
1: Sure, and if you're looking for Mark, his last name is Wilson on Twitter. He's Mayor Mark Wilson and on Facebook simply Mark Wilson. Appreciate the time. Stay in touch.
9: I I ran for mayor in 2009, and I thought it was a good uh, Twitter handle, so I just kept it. Why not? (laughs) Got to keep everybody in check, Patty. Uh, Thanks a lot for your time today.
1: I appreciate yours. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away.
0: Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. It's taking more to the Director of Advocacy and Communications with Municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Dr. Deatra Walsh. Good morning, Dr. Walsh. You're on the air.
10: Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you this
1: morning? Very well. How mm-hmm. about you?
10: I'm good, thank you. Um, I, we note in your preamble that you uh, were, were starting a, a reignition, I suppose, of the conversation about the role of municipalities in healthcare. And that's uh, part of the reason why we're calling in this morning and why I'm here this morning as well. Uh,
1: I'm glad you picked up on it. You know, I've put that out there repeatedly over the years. And it's only to provoke conversation because, you know, we may indeed end up with a community versus community like we are experiencing with the province versus province. But as so far as MNL and you personally, what do you think the role is of municipal? our leaders?
10: Well, and I, and I agree. I think it's important to have this conversation. Um, we're at a, I would argue, a very different time right now than we were even perhaps 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And at M&L, we recognize that municipalities do have a role to play in community health and safety. And in fact, that was one of the advocacy pillars that our board voted on in 2022. And and, and in saying that, it's um, it's that municipalities don't need to take on all of these things. Certainly, there are other systems that are working, but Um, there is a place um, for them because healthcare and well-being is happening in community and you know um, doing municipal work is not just about what we would call core municipal issues. It's not just about roads and infrastructure. Um, The health and well-being of our residents um, goes across the board Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely part of the conversations that we've been having and certainly with the health accord and the consultations around that, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador recognizes that municipalities have a role to play. I think what we need to consider here, and to your point, um, is there a competitive environment um, and I would say, no, I don't think that's the goal here, to create a competitive environment. And certainly from m perspective, that's never what we want to see. Um, we recognize that there's certainly a shortage of physicians, a shortage of healthcare professionals. You know, services are definitely under strain. Um, but it's so, so, so important to work together and, again, for our municipal leaders to have what we call a seat at the table when decisions are being made.
1: Yeah, because there's a big difference to, between, say, for instance, here in my community, Dr. Megan Hayes, who is the uh, Deputy Minister responsible for recruitment and retention, here's why this community is perfect for a young doctor and their family. And describe all of the amenities and attributes and the people and the history or whatever the case may be to paint a very uh, encouraging or enticing picture, I think there's a long way between that and financial incentives. Because that's where it's going to be the haves and the have-nots will probably percolate up to the top of the healthcare recruitment conversation so I get how municipalities and if I'm the mayor of a community, my concern is my community and i want to do the best i can for them even though it's not my uh, absolute mandate role to be involved in healthcare recruitment if it's going to make my community healthier safer and better then i'm going to do what i have to do but i just i don't really know how we can make that you know equitable across the differences between a big urban center and a small rural community so that's that's where i'm hoping the conversation goes
10: Absolutely, and uh, you make a good point. I mean, municipal leaders, and certainly we've heard it over the past couple of years, um, You know, it, even though it's not necessarily totally within their jurisdiction, um, but they are the first point of contact for many residents who are experiencing challenges navigating any of these systems. So, you know, there is they, they, they care. You're absolutely right. They care about what's happening in their community. Certainly a lot of our members and a lot of our municipal leaders are working together with other communities, and, you know, we've always advocated and we've had lots of conversations with you about a regional approach and healthcare is no is no different than that Uh, on the issue of financial incentives um, you know again a lot of that is outside of the purview or control of any particular municipal leader Um, there are other people working on that sort of system-wide approach at the provincial uh, government level and certainly with support and funding from the federal government Um, and how that rolls out is uh, is important Um, is again it should never be to pit one community against the other and you know from M perspective. We've also had a, a key role to play in in supporting physician recruitment and retention, and healthcare professional uh, recruitment and retention. So we've been involved with with work um, with post postsecondary uh, institutions, predominantly Memorial University, and with the government to work on that. And you know the importance of creating, you know, what what again, what can a municipality do? It's the importance of creating safe and inclusive spaces, ensuring services are available to the extent that's possible. To look regionally at that. Um, and to put all that in place, no matter where the community is, um, and to the si- or to the to the scale that the community can manage, whatever's um, possible for them, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do think it's part of the equation and how it could work in best practices and for equitable approach. I don't know, but that's why I open up this can of worms uh, on purpose this morning to see where people come down, because we've seen some communities be very aggressive, like Bonavista. And the reason it popped in my mind this morning is because of the story about the Bonavista emergency room. So if, and and I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. I mean, if John Norman or any other mayor thinks that, look, we've got land and service lots, we can give them to you for a dollar maybe we've got some money in the coffers we can put uh, cash on the head as an incentive for an enticement fair enough i just wonder what people think is the best way to do this
10: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, to the point of what what tools and resources does any particular municipality have at its disposal? And are they using that? Um, And, and, you know, we don't speak on behalf of any one municipality. I've said that before, and certainly I'll say it again now. Um, But there's advocacy work that happens at the local level for sure. But I do think that many of our members and I know, in fact, they are looking at this from a regional perspective. Um, If if you have services available in your community that services an entire region and that's meaningful for that region, and then, you know, that's obviously an important approach as well. Um, certainly, we just heard an announcement from Minister Osborne on virtual care and some uh, some uh, advancements related to that as it relates to the health accord. Uh, you know, that's a complementary piece that might help um, sort of the situation overall. And, you know, then it's, it's an evolving process. I mean, these are very difficult times, and it is very difficult in community, especially smaller communities, more rural and remote communities. We all recognize that. So um, sort of working together is what is so critical. Here, um, all orders of government, as we say, to try to you know meet 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 our residents where they are and meet their needs um, to the best of our ability.
1: Before we run out of time this morning, Diatra, any thoughts on the new legislation brought forward by Minister Hagee regarding uh, municipal operations?
10: Uh, well, the Towns and Local Services District Act uh, went through the third reading and Royal Assent last week. Certainly that piece of legislation um, and, you know, just updated municipal enabling legislation is something m and has been asking for and advocating for for quite some time. Um, it's an extensive piece of legislation. Um, my read of it right now and our look at it is it reflects a lot of the things that we did indeed ask for and were part of the consultation process in 2017, 2018. Uh, I mean, Particularly important here is um, um, for the policy nerds in the the room uh, is this notion of the purpose of a a municipality and, again, that enabling function. And all of that is in there now. Um, Part of it now is working with the department and with our members to better understand um, some of the newer pieces that are in there. Um, And for your listeners, there was a lot that was taken from the existing legislation and brought into it. Um, It's uh, better organized now, readable, um, you know, very... I would set, suggest user-friendly but now it's a matter of you know what does it look like in from an implementation point of view and um and you know and and what might be any foreseeable bumps as it relates to that piece of legislation and if we do foresee any bumps of course we'll have those conversations um with the department and certainly our president will be bringing that up as well so right now it's uh let's 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 have those conversations about what this looks like in practice and and work through it together. But uh, at the end of the day, it it is enabling, and I think it's important. You know, we're one of the last jurisdictions to have this kind of legislation in the country. So a pretty important step uh, right now for us, for sure.
1: No question. Appreciate the time this morning.
10: Thank you for having me. Have a great morning.
1: The very same to you. Take care. As Dr. Deatra Walsh, Director of Advocacy and Communications with MNL. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Colin, you're on the air.
11: Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Very well. You? Good, thanks. wanted to uh, talk about a story out in Saskatchewan that came in the news last week. It's about a uh, Saskatchewan uh, MLA, a member of the Provincial Assembly there in Regina.
1: You're talking about the solicitation charge? Yes, sir, I am. Okay. Yeah, yeah his name yeah. is Ryan Domitor.
11: Yep yeah uh, he's in the government government uh, the, he's a member for the government side of the house and uh apparently i think it was on friday uh, the premier scott moore became aware that uh, he had been charged with uh, solicitation for sexual services uh, allegedly in a, uh, a police sting operation apparently and uh, the premier upon hearing this uh, immediately uh booted the man from caucus, stripped him of all his uh, legislative responsibilities and uh, kicked him out of the party.
1: I saw it. And so I'm pretty sure I know where we're going with this uh, this morning. So the thought is that Premier Mo has convicted him before he's had his day in court.
11: Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, no such thing as presumed innocent. You're, you're gone. And it's not just the fact that he kicked him out of the caucus, you know, and stripped him of all his uh, legislative responsibilities and things like that. Uh, it's the comments that the premier made in justifying what he did. Uh, he said that um, you know the uh, this party, uh, the Saskatchewan party, and the legislative assembly uh, has no place for a person who's charged with a crime like this.
1: That's right. i read I read a
11: story. I, I, I just find that astounding that the Premier's commenting, uh, you know, he kicked him out of the caucus, that's one thing, but then to to, to make public statements about the charge, uh, which is at this point just an allegation, the man hasn't even had his day in court, he has uh, a full right to the presumption of innocence, he has the right to a trial, and uh, it appears to me that Premier Mao is uh, picking and choosing which types of criminal charges uh, people in his caucus uh, will face that they'll either get the boot or they'll get to stay in caucus? So, I have a question for him. If um, one of his uh, party members were charged with, say, impure driving, would they immediately be kicked out of caucus too? Is that the type of criminal charge that would get uh, the premier so riled up that he would kick somebody out of caucus? Because if that's the case, the premier shouldn't be in caucus, and he shouldn't be the premier because he was convicted of impure driving. He was, yeah. Right? Yeah. Do not sling mud. You know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw rocks.
1: Well, I think uh, Scott Moe can rightfully be accused of being a mudslinger. Man, some of the stuff went on during the most recent election. Ooh, boy, oh boy. Yeah, it was something else.
11: Yeah, and it's it's about... uh, it's about due process. I mean, he's the premier of the province. And this is his Justice Department, right, that's that's going to be potentially conducting a uh, criminal prosecution of this man. And for him to make those statements, I and mean, he I also made statements about vulnerable women too, that uh, you know, uh, people in the legislature, uh, obviously the person who was charged with this uh, offense, uh, they should be working to help vulnerable women instead of exploiting them. Again, this man is just charged. No matter what you think about prostitution and whether women are being exploited or, or not, or they're vulnerable in these situations or not, and that's a political debate that we can have. But again, the man is just charged, so he hasn't exploited anybody.
1: And what's interesting about uh, the laws as it pertains to... Uh, sex work is not—it's not illegal to sell it. It's illegal to per, uh, to buy it or to pay for it. And you know, you can do it out in the open, but you can't do it in the confines of what pe- people refer to as a brothel. So it's just so weird how we talk about that issue, anyway, in this country.
11: Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's a bigger discussion about. Yeah, I know. Abuse,
1: I just to my head.
11: laws and stuff. And you're you're absolutely right. You know, in my opinion, my own personal opinion, I think uh, consenting adults. Uh, whether it's not a position of trust or there's no coercion or anything like that, should be free to do whatever they want. You know, it, uh, prostitution should be fully legalized, regulated, and taxed. And with all the pension, put in pension benefits and uh, health and safety regulations and everything like
1: that. I can't remember which union it was. I'm going to say QP because I'm pretty sure it was CUPE. Yeah. CUPE talked about uh, uh, unionizing sex workers not that long ago.
11: Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's, yeah, again, consenting adults. Uh, it's, you know, I, I see no reason why somebody who's who's working as an escort, who's making I don't know, say a hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm just picking a number off the top of my no head idea. here. Yeah, um, that's black market money. They're not paying taxes on that. It's not. They're not getting health benefits from from uh, from an employer. They're not getting workers' comp. Uh, benefits or anything like that uh, these people men and women Uh, should be entitled to to the same work uh, rights that everybody else has. And that's my position on it, you
1: know. Well, in parts of the United States, if you can work for an escort agency and be getting, uh, having taxes collected and uh, benefits afforded and all the rest of it, it's a fascinating conversation but, I mean, the crime is for the so-called John, not for the person selling sex. And if we're talking about the fact that it really can be exploitive, which it absolutely can be, issues associated with the human trafficking and sex work is very very real but in the world of consulting adults who do it of their own accord if the concern is to try to make it as safe as possible and yes if you want to incorporate the tax conversation we can include that but in jurisdictions where they've gone down the road of doing what you suggest, it's become a much more safer uh, environment. And if that's the outcome, that's probably a very good thing because you're right. If, say, one of my buddies uh, wants to do that and pay for sex, well, and if the person doing it has not been coerced, has not been forced into sex work, then I don't really care, right? You know, if that's the two consenting adults conversation, fair ball. Uh, Anything else before we say goodbye this morning, Colin?
11: No, it's just, uh, you know, the premier of the province... And like I just reiterated, uh, it's his Justice Department and his Attorney General that's going, to, and, you know, the agents of the Attorney General, the Crown Prosecutors. They're going to be the ones who are carrying out this potential prosecution here. And you had to have the leader of the government making these statements about a, a a charge that's been laid and is now before the court, most inappropriate for him to do that. And he's cherry-picking criminal charges. So, you know, he's giving the impression that some some criminal charges you have allowed to stay in caucus. Other ones, uh, according to me in my discretion... As the army, almighty leader of the, of the province, uh, you're booted out of caucus. And uh, solicitation is one that you're out, but potentially impure driving is one that you'll get to stay in caucus. Because you know, don't look at me, look at the other people. You know, don't look at my don't look at my closet. Don't look at the skeletons in my closet. Look at other people. Don't judge me, judge other people. You know, he's convicted yeah. criminal. C- call a spade a spade, and you know he wants to go down that road. That's fine. But well, he did. He built it to impaired drivings. He has a criminal record. He's the premier of the province. Do not judge lest you be judged.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'll add to it, because I do have to get to the news, is, you know, even for politicians, who I think should stay out of these conversations for the most part anyway, even after there's been convictions, you know, I harken back to the uh, murder charge and conviction out in Saskatchewan, uh, and immediately after, there were politicians, including the Prime Minister, if I'm not mistaken, chiming in on it, when in fact there's also a window for appeal. So, until the process has come to its conclusion, then maybe, just maybe, politicians should kind of stay out of it anyway. If you want to talk about crime in general terms, which Mr. Poliev is and whatnot, you know, the general conversation, okay, that's just part and parcel with how we discuss politics and political matters in this country. But for very specific cases, until the process is done in full, maybe politicians should just stay out of it anyway. Uh, I appreciate the time uh, this morning, Colin. Thanks a lot. Cheers, buddy. Take care. Bye bye. Bye Remember that case, Dave? The farmer shot that kid on his property? And as soon as he was convicted, boom. Or no, f- I found innocent. Yes, that's the way that went. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the soon to be finished uh, construction of the Western Regional Memorial Hospital. Then Michael wants to talk about what he see behind colonial building and the, the tent city. And then we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
0: Join Craig Smith weeknights at five forty-five as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Michael, you're on the air.
12: Hello. Hello. Yes, yeah, the conditions down here is not very really good. There's. We need the garbage picked up. We need some wire. We need our volunteers.
1: Uh, So, Michael, you're one of the people living in the tent behind the colonial building.
12: Yeah, I was living up to the confederation one, too. Okay. Wrong kind of people. Yeah, this place. uh, Can you guys ask uh, the city to donate some
11: pallets because we need some pallets.
1: I can probably organize that. I know a couple of people I can ask about pallets just to get the tents up off the ground. That makes a lot of sense to me. I thought I had seen a big blue pallet down there when I drove by yesterday. Maybe I'm mistaken, but I can maybe work on that. Sound Hi, good? Patty. Hi. My
13: name is My name is Denise, and I'm a volunteer down here. Um, Yeah, uh, we're looking to get some pallets donated. We're looking to get some pallets donated, and um, the garbage is piled up down here, and, uh, yeah, we need more tents we don't have enough tents. Uh, all the blankets that were in the supply tent, uh, everything that was in the supply tent had uh, collapsed on us on the storm that we had last, uh, the other night. And they have no dry blankets. Everybody's sleeping in wet blankets and it's very uncomfortable. People are getting sick. There's gonna be diseases spread down here if something it doesn't change.
1: What are, are you doing as a volunteer? I think you said your name is Denise, right?
13: Yes, I am. Oh, okay. I'm, here. I'm here every day helping clean up the garbage, talking to the residents, comforting them, uh, giving them rides to the methadone clinics, uh, charging their phones, making sure whatever they need they have. Yeah, so basically I've been here with uh, two other volunteers that we have. Uh, we've been here just basically every day so far in the last week or so because we were off the Confederation Hill and uh, we were organizing that. And uh, so, yeah, we're in desperate need of so much stuff down here. These people are hid away, Patty, and nobody can see them. Uh, There's no protesting going on. There's no movement being done here. Seems like uh, everybody is just getting ready. Everybody is just getting ready for the winter, but we don't have the supplies to get ready right now. And it's very cold here today.
1: Are there garbage bins in the park that you can use for whatever's being uh, uh, on
14: the ground? No,
13: we have piles and piles of garbage that pile had piles. everything that ruined in the supply tent. It's not usable. Um, yeah, what blankets and that we had, they're all gone, they're wet, they're soaked. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're trying, if we can get the community to reach out and please bring some warm blankets and pillows and quilts for us so they can be warm tonight and not have to sleep in those wet blankets tonight.
1: I'm sure there's people out there listening who are going to be uh, able to provide some types of support. We are scheduled to have a conversation with the city here coming up pretty soon too about things like garbage pickup and some options that are being explored and there's people making suggestions here in my email inbox and on social media that we're going to uh, consider as well. Uh, Denise, I'm sure they're really appreciative of your uh, volunteer effort and if anyone out there listening is someone who does know where we can get some pallets to get the tents off the ground. and or has some uh, uh, items they'd like to donate. You know, we'll help try to coordinate. If anyone wants to contact us, or simply make their way down to the Colonial Building and do what they have to do as well today. Yeah. Anything else you want to say, th- uh, Denise?
13: Uh, just to, if we can have some firewood and some water dropped off too, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. a fire extinguisher. Yeah, just the the one over on the tree. That's, that's okay, the we need a new fire extinguisher for the hot tent. The one on the tree got ruined in the storm, and uh, yeah, basically that's about right. That's about it right now. And if we can get more people down here to help, to help keep. This place cleaned up. You know, these people are worn down. They're well, mentally it's drained. Down, so this, it's 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 getting really bad down here, Patty.
1: I understand, uh, and we're going to see if we can't organize a, a little bit more support and some help Denise. Uh, I appreciate your time.
13: Thank you so much, Patty. You have a great day. The Thank same you. to you.
1: Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly. Elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands, that's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. How about you?
8: Oh, good, sir. It's Patty, thanks again for taking my call. I'm calling again today on, on the uh, the people in West Memorial Regional Hospital who, who are waiting to go in uh, for the cath lab to get the dye test again. Um, what happens on many occasions is uh, uh, there's usually then a backlog in, in Cornerbrook waiting to go in and from my understanding, and I was in speaking to a few friends actually, who neighbours, who, neighbors, uh, who, who uh, are in there now and there's 12 people now on the list in Corner Brook uh, w- are waiting to get in. Uh, one person is in there for 28 days uh, waiting to get in and as I mentioned before there's uh, two beds there for the whole of Western Newfoundland and Labrador and the anxiety and, and this person, uh, one person was waiting to go in, uh, ready to go and they said emergency came up and was cancelled. The second time they said a potential bad weather in Labrador cancelled. The third time they said the pilot's timed out so so this person is pretty anxious to, to get in after uh, after three to four weeks um, uh, waiting. And numerous other people's up to two, three, four, uh, going on the fourth week. And I, I know a lot of these people, and they're from the um, not just the Hummer Bay of or they're from Jerry Burns' district, Scott Reed's district. So I, I'm just raising the concern again that the uh, uh, you hear uh, the touting of the, uh, the fly in, fly out. And uh, last time that happened, uh, I called into your show, and then there was a plane came picked up nine seven came back that night and uh two had to stay in to get stints from my understanding and um i'm just raising this issue again for for the residents of western newfoundland um that, that are in the hospital that, that are waiting to go in for for for, uh, for the dye test uh, the anxiety is high um every time they hear it might be a plane coming in it's canceled and it raises them, their anxiety so uh, I'll, and I'll be rating the minister today on this again which i did the uh, um, back in August the uh, last time that there was an extreme backlog in the in the western Newfoundland uh, for that so I, I just want to um, to bring that issue uh, in the forefront again and and find try, try and see if we can find a solution that, that that we don't have to wait wait 28 days <clears throat> some in there three four weeks some in there now up going going under the third week uh, and, and waiting for it and if they leave and go home um, then they may take up to eight, nine months to a year before they get a call. and when I was talking to a few of them last night, I was in to visit a family member, and I dropped down to see a friend. Uh, the staff in there are great. They're, they're very good to them all, and they're, they're trying to help them with their anxiety and trying to give them the best information they can to get. But the uh, but I, I, I'm going to raise the concern. I'll be rating the minister on their behalf, and I, I just hope that there's something to be done so so this can be taken care of in, in the future with this uh, with this plane that they're supposed to have with the fly-in and fly-out. And I still don't think they have the plane. I think what they do is actually uh, they go out and they, um, uh, they, they go and, and hire one of Pell's flights to come in to take rid of the backlog. Uh, so I'm just calling upon the minister again today to, uh, to see what he can do for, for Western Newfoundland and, uh, and Labrador for the patients that have been in there for so long.
1: And this is all about the wait time to get into the cath lab? Lab, yeah. Okay, so, you know, I remember a number of years ago, there was a gentleman who was actually in a hospital in Cornerbrook waiting for a dye test, and the poor man died while still waiting for the cath lab procedure i could never understand when the debates were happening uh, after they announced and of course as we know the Cornerbrook hospital had been announced and announced and announced and announced and it took an awful long time before anything got actually going there redesign re-engineering but no or very little clamoring for a cath lab yep. when in fact that might have been one of the most impactful things for the entire region i mean it would keep people out of hospital beds it'd have closer access because there's only one it's at the health sciences here in st John. so i would was always surprised that we went right to radiology versus even consideration of a cath lab which I would have thought would be extremely beneficial
8: and and when when that came up in the discussions and 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 there were discussions on that is that you need a full team for that for surgery if need be immediately and and things like that and and to get a cath lab to to put in you you need the the whole apparatus around the cath lab that may be in the future but but at the time Uh, when we were doing uh, briefings on it, if if I was out, for example, if I was out toting for a cath lab, knowing right now that we don't have the apparatus or the staff uh, to to put in for the cath lab, it it would almost be like giving false hope down the road. There's potential for that. But right now, at the time that we were giving all the information on it, the information would be, no, you wouldn't be able to get the uh, the full apparatus that you need uh, for that in Corner Brook. And hopefully down the road, uh, when it can't come up, because I don't want to go out touting that and saying we should have it, knowing full well right now we can't do that. But the uh, but the radiation unit can be done, and, and that's why we push for radiation at the time. And the cath lab is, is a big issue for, for western Newfoundland. It, it, is a, it is a big issue. And I I wrote to Minister back in August. I'll, I'll be writing them again today, and be, be fair to Tom Osborne. He did give me a response that they would look into it and things like that, and so I'm just hoping that that somewhere that you you don't have to wait to get 12, 13, 14 people uh, waiting to go in for for the uh, cath lab to get a diet test. That there's some way you you can take in three or four, and you wouldn't have this backlog. So so that's the intent of it right now, and uh, hopefully that we can get uh, get some people moving in, and hopefully there won't be a backlog in Western Newfoundland
1: I appreciate the time, Eddie.
8: Uh, Patty, thank you again for giving me the opportunity and, and for the people that, that are in uh, West Memorial waiting to go in, and maybe even Stephen last time, someone from Stephen came in, hang in there. Um, uh, I understand the stress that they're all going through. Uh, thank the staff for for, for helping them break through it. I spoke to the staff also. And a lot of these people, Patty, I know them personally, and and this is why they call me and, and send me note, and I speak to them personally. You know, a few of them are my neighbors, actually, just down the road a little ways. So thank you again for the opportunity and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see some movement on on this in the very near future
1: appreciate the time thanks a lot eddie Uh, thank you again take care all right bye-bye uh let's see here let's get to the break when we come back the seniors advocate report on combating poverty amongst the seniors and then matt wants to talk about mini splits don't go away and welcome back to the show let's go line number one matt you're on the air hi matt line number one is the pot up there dave by chance buddy line number one matt you're on the air going once matt going twice matt's on hold let's go to line number three or nine no, number five good morning mary shortle you're on the air
14: good morning patty thanks for uh, making time for me today no problem i was uh, uh looking at the seniors uh, report that the seniors advocate put out last week and i guess I'm not surprised by you know, some of the awful statistics that were in it, uh, given the affordability crisis that a lot of people are going through. But it's still shocking when you see those numbers there. You know, Fifty-seven percent uh, of people surveyed can't afford to buy medical supplies and devices. Sixty percent go without food. I mean, that's a, a horrible uh, abhorrent statistic for uh, for our province's seniors, and I know the there was, was more about more of the stats that talked about not being able to meet their needs. Uh, it's very clear that poverty among seniors is rising in the face of all this cost-of-living uh, crisis and we know it's it's specifically uh, particular for elderly women because there's uh, a lot more elderly women who, uh, who didn't have full-time jobs uh, and their pensions are reflective of that but it's so uh, shocking just to see that in writing when we know that seniors have spent their whole life shaping our problems and shaping the country and this is uh, this is what they have to uh, face in their senior years. But I've been knocking on doors as, as the candidate for St. John's East in the next federal election, and I'm hearing that at the door. there's seniors who come to the door and openly talk about you know, having to use a food bank for the first time in their lives and how absolutely uh, mortified they are to walk through the doors, um, having to rely on their adult children to step in and help them pay some of the costs because they just can't afford it. And that's also very uh, very embarrassing for them because sometimes their children are struggling as well or that they think that they it shouldn't be that way. You know, some of those stories that you hear at the door are heartbreaking. And I know that... Um, the The seniors advocate report says it's due in part to provincial systems and benefits and and that's true, but I think there's also a role for the federal government here and I think there's been uh successes cuts by by liberal and conservative governments over the years, and a lot of those programs that would make life a little bit easier for seniors and um As the NDP uh, candidate, I I just want to say that, you know, we need to um, keep harping to have those policies in place that would help them, things like dental care and things like pharmacare. I mean, I I talked to a woman at the door prior to the dental care bill being passed who uh, had a medical condition that... um, that affected her teeth, and she couldn't afford to get her teeth fixed. But it also then, when she couldn't, when she lost her teeth, impacted her health, and so then it impacts medication and her ability. So there's so many links when you look at what some of these policies can do. And the NDP have been fighting really hard uh, in Ottawa for the what can happen federally to help offset some of this. You know, GSD rebate on home heating, pushing very, very hard for a universal pharmacare care program. That's expected uh, before the end of the year. Really important policy uh, piece that the NDP have been pushing. The need to demand more on food prices. You know we've seen how high um, the food uh, prices have gone up. And but how does uh, that work,
1: Mary? You know, when it comes to the price of food? You know, political direct political intervention has proven to be fruitless in the past when we've th- when it's been attempted. So when it comes to the federal government and price of groceries. How does that look like? What are what are people suggesting?
14: Well, I mean, one of the one of the things the NDP has suggested, and other organizations as well, advocacy organizations, Oxfam talked about it in their latest report as well. Um, that when you see that the. Big corporations, like big oil and gas corporations and the giant food corporations like Loblaws, uh, Sobeys, Metro, all of them, their profits are uh, excessive every this quarter. Last quarter, they doubled their profits from this time last year. And so one of the things that has been suggested and and not acted upon yet is to have a windfall tax on those extraordinary profits. Uh, that have been gained over the last several years and that would help uh, offset the reduce the basing living costs so if it's not directly in groceries uh, it it would be directly in other things that could help it like uh, you know the, the things that the the things that the NDP are putting forward, like the rebates and the pharmacare and the food part and the uh, uh, dental care, where people are saying, now "How can you afford that?" Well, here's one way you can do it, and it's the big grocery chains that are making an extraordinary amount of profit, along with some other big corporations. So there are things to do. Uh, I guess the political will. Need to be there to do them there's some immediate things that can happen uh, but there's there's um, it, there's just so many issues that are impacting cost of living for all of us. But in particular, there's a certain portion of us that are falling through those cracks. And, uh, you know, CPP is not keeping up with inflation. Um, Those costs, the GIS isn't keeping up with inflation. So there's all kinds of different ways to address that that will be able to help offset that price. And I know there's other things that were in the report uh, around, you know, even having access to be able to travel to the supermarkets to get your groceries as seniors. Gas is extraordinarily high for some people. Um, You know, not having, uh, access to be to home care because of uh, co-payments. We're one of only six provinces where you have to co-pay to have home care. You know there are and those are policies that are set at the federal level. So there mm-hmm. are things that can be done
1: in the world of windfall tax. I, I mean, I know why people would think that that's a victory for the consumer. There has been one imposed on the banking sector and for life insurance firms as well. So it's called the Canada Recovery Dividend, fifteen percent mm-hmm. one-time tax on income above a million dollars in 2020 and in 2021 but when it comes to grocery retailers where do we decide what represents excessive profit and at what level will that so-called excessive profit be taxed because the possibility here is that could make things worse because there's nothing going to say that the grocery giants can't just pass along that financial burden to me to the customer so i just wonder are we looking at optical victories or the reality of what actually actually uh, uh, is part of the uh, uh, grocery price setting. We talk about the shelves, but we don't talk about distribution. We don't talk about the lack of competition in the country, which is a bigger part of this conversation regarding food inflation than many of the other targets that people point to. So with that said, do you think that a windfall tax on groceries might actually have the exact opposite effect and make things worse?
14: Well, the bill that uh, uh, the private members bill that came forward not too long ago from the NDP federally added the windfall tax along with other policy measures around that, especially around grocery chains and the other ones were posing penalties. On the uh, grocery chains for price gouging, for price fixing, uh, to put in rules, uh, to put in policies and regulations around uh, co- competition. So all the things you are talking about, because you are right, you're, you're right on when you say that. But it to be in effect with measures other than just the windfall tax to complement that whole set of uh, policies to do it. So that's not, you know, not, they would not be able to do what you're saying, and and put the price back on consumers by rising price costs because if they were seen to, to have done that or price gouging or fixing, then there would be heavy fines imposed. So it's part of a whole series uh, of uh, recommendations that were put forward in Ottawa and so far haven't been uh, haven't moved anywhere it was voted down uh, yeah. last week I believe yeah. I gotta
1: go pretty quick but we should pay more attention to the competition bureau we have a competition yeah. problem here we have a productivity problem in the country we, we don't do. talk about that enough very quickly on pharmacare and I you know, I wish we had more time to talk about your role as the newly elected president of the party federally but in pharmacare you know where does the line get drawn how long is the NDP willing to in essence prop up the liberal government with the supply and confidence agreement he got the dental care that was a victory victory in something the party pushed for. Then you got another victory, I would suggest, with the anti-replacement worker legislation for only federally regulated industries and organizations. But if the government doesn't come through with Pharmacare, as they've talked about many, many times, and every time there's been a report done on it, it has a huge uh, cost up front, but overall cost savings. So if they don't, say, have this in place by, or introduce it by February or March, when is it where the NDP say, well, we got to get back to our own party business as opposed to you know getting these victories through the supply conference agreement.
14: Uh, that's really interesting and I'd love to have a lot of time to talk about it and to talk to you about my role as president of the uh, federal party too because I'm really excited about that and we can chat about it at some point. But just um Kind of quickly on that that, uh, um, that agreement that was struck Not a coalition, but a confidence And supply agreement that was struck Had several different things in it A set number of items that the NDP agreed to work with the Liberals On, uh, providing they would do That, because you elect a parliament for A four-year term, and nobody wants an election Every couple of years as the polls swing Back and forth, and so they, you know, they, We see it as our responsibility to make Parliament work until 2025 To get what we can for Canadian and a lot of things were the things that the Liberal government's been promising for a long time. The Conservative government may or may not uh, want to ever act on some of those things that help us. And so there's a bit of a, t- a time uh, sensitive uh, uh, movement to this and so with the Pharmacare I was at the federal convention in October and it was very clear by the delegates there and it was very clearly stated uh, by both the leader and the MPs who are working specifically on that file that uh, it's, it, there's an expectation that it will be exactly as the recommendations of the Hopkins report came out universal single payer Pharmacare and I know they're having a lot of difficulty getting to that point and the the deadline is the end of the year uh, f- to have that framework in place, not to have the full thing in place, but the framework to move forward. But those are the really important elements of that. Now, the only one who can back away from that agreement is the leader, uh, but the leader was very clear about it, and the the delegates were very clear about it that that was a very serious issue uh for new democrats and for all the people who've been advocating yeah. for it and they're tired of uh, a government that's um, that's a little bit nervous of facing uh, the 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 big advocates in the the lobbying at the insurance and pharmaceutical companies and that no longer can be announced so i would say that's that's one of the most serious pieces of that whole uh, confidence and supply
1: agreement. Yeah. I mean, and the Jagmeet thing, the leadership review got a support of 81% of the delegates, which sounds like mm-hmm. a huge number, but in the big scheme of things, not really. So I, I wonder, you know, where individual NDP members and potential candidates and volunteers and supporters, where they think the line should be drawn because at some point getting back to the NDP being the NDP, as opposed to the, uh, the prop up of the current liberal government, there could be some long-term issues there for the Party, I would imagine, but I'm sure those conversations are happening all the time. Mary, i got to get to the news, but next time let's talk about your role as a president and whatever else you want to talk about. I'd
5: love to
14: do that, Patty. Thanks very much. Thanks, Have Mary. A day.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we go back, Mac, Matt is back in the queue to talk about mini-splits, and then we're going to talk about the carbon tax. Don't go away. Your voice
0: in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation.
13: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line. With Patty Daly on your V O C M. Welcome back.
1: Let's try Matt again. Line number four. Matt, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Morning.
12: I got a mini spray from my house, mm-hmm. and I've actually, I've got it for the last six years. I've been paying insurance for the last six years. So the other day, I decided to phone the insurance company to make sure I was covered. Find so out I got no insurance.
1: What do you mean? You've been making insurance premium payments and you don't have insurance?
12: No. Uh, when I put my ins- my split in, I took a, took all furnace out, and I oh. the insurance company I told them what I was doing. I put in the split and they said that's fine. So we've been paying insurance for the last six years, thirty nine dollars a year. And when I, when I phoned the insurance company they said, "No, your insurance is going to be cancelled because." I'm using as the main source of heat.
1: Yeah, heat pumps or mini splits cannot be considered a primary source of heat for home insurance purposes, that's right.
12: Yeah, and I heard you were talking about an open line that you had the same problem one time.
1: No, I didn't have the problem, but I've heard of people uh, experiencing exactly what you're going through. So the trick here is, you know, even with the carbon tax carve out on home heating oil and people with the ability, if you meet the, uh, the threshold, to get the central heat pump, before anyone does anything, you should absolutely call, not only the people who install it and get a home inspection done, but you absolutely should call your insurance provider. Because if you find yourself in a spot where you no longer qualify for home insurance because you you don't have the appropriate primary source of heat, then you've got yourself a huge pickle. So that's my suggestion to everybody. Deal directly with the company. If you want to help navigate all the different pots of money, the greener home grant and the central heat pumps and all, call one of the companies that sell them and install them. They'll walk you through every single program out there. And then when you hang up the phone from that call, call the insurance company. Because if you don't, you'll find yourself exactly where Matt finds himself.
12: Yeah, well I I I, I actually when, when I put my e pump in there, so no one told us that insurance didn't cover I many e pumps. Everybody was saying, put them in there they're good on electricity and they're cheap to run. And so I said, we had an oil furnace at the time. Yep. So I took the oil furnace, the phone insurance company told them I was doing, they come out and inspected the house, made sure everything was done that was supposed to be done, and now we just kept on paying my insurance and they didn't say to me that you, if you've got a manuscript you're not, you're not covered by insurance until I decided to set a better phone, make sure I know
1: I got no insurance. Well that's poor service by that company if they came out and did the inspection and you told them exactly yeah. what you're doing and they didn't tell you that your insurance yes. will now be null and void then that's just terrible service.
12: That is so terrible service yeah. I phoned an insurance company on the mainland right now I'm paying thirty nine dollars a year for insurance I found a company on the main end, all of a sudden it's $2,500 because of the spits, they don't insure them
1: yeah yeah so I'll reiterate what I think is the best advice I could give and I don't pretend to know it all that's why I say go to the companies they have service that they'll tell people exactly what programs are available how they work what's best for you have a home inspection done then go right to your insurance company because this is happening to Canadians all the time now and you just yeah. can't have it you know especially with you know what is very attractive uh, offering of a free central heat pump but if you think that all of a sudden you can take out every other source of heat in your home and get home insurance you might be kidding yourself so call your insurance provider before you take any applications or make any moves
12: yes well the, the, the people that's installing those heat pumps they should tell people when they come in if this is your only source of eat, you got no insurance and then people wouldn't be putting them in now that, yeah. that is the problem they don't tell everybody they come in they want to say you this heat pump and they don't tell you a thing that you're not covered by insurance if this is your only sort of eat. That's what they told us, and we went ahead and done it, and now we're in this this situation now that we got no insurance
1: the companies I deal with and the companies I recommend they absolutely do tell their customers about insurance implications but if you call a company and they don't talk about insurance then call your insurance company it's got to be as simple as that because what are people gonna have to do now spend the money to put back in a different backup source of heat just in case you know in some of the very cold temperatures where your heat pump may not be effective so do exactly that folks if you're gonna entertain any of these projects Uh, anything else you wanna say this morning Matt
12: yeah, my my problem is I only got like a one hundred and a pounds. Yeah, so I can't put electric like heat in without rewiring the whole house. Yep, understood. And I know you can buy those one t- one twenty voltage heaters. You just hook them into your outlets, like it's, it's tied into your wiring, but you don't have to. Uh, you don't have two forty. You only you have one twenty. And I was just wondered if that would be called by an insurance company. I don't know. I don't know don't
1: know. no. But they'll be able Anyhow. to tell you. Anyway, I appreciate no. the time, Adam. Sorry to hear the circumstances you find yourself in.
12: Yeah, I know. Okay, thank you.
1: You're welcome, sir. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, we'll hold Jay for after the break, uh, David, or do you want me to start it here? You want to hold it till after the break? Okay, so... Plenty of suggestions coming in, and folks who heard the call from Michael and Denise talk about some of the things that they need uh, down at that tent city, the mini encampment between the Colonial Building and Bannerman Park. I don't know of any formal drop-off sites for your kind donations, so the only thing that I can uh, suggest is that you go directly down there yourself and drop them off. There's also been, you know, people talk about cash donations, what have you. I'm not going to get too deeply involved in the cash donation business, but I think the best thing to do is provide the product as opposed to the cash just to ensure that your good intentions are followed through on. And also when we talk about opportunities for uh, good hygiene and to get in out of the cold or to get some uh, different type of wraparound services, at the gathering place, people are indeed going there for showers, laundry, a meal, a place to warm up. What they're suggesting, though, is if you are one of the folks listening down at that, that, that site this morning, The best piece of advice, and this comes directly from the folks at The Gathering Place, is give them a call to schedule the laundry services and stuff ahead of time, so that you uh, know what you're getting yourself into. So those are a couple of tidbits there. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, it's the carbon tax. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Jay Goldberg. He's with the Canadian Taxpayers Association. Uh, Good morning, Jay. You're on the air.
15: Good morning. Great to be with you.
1: Happy to have you on the show. What's on your mind?
15: Well, what's on our mind this morning is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation commissioned uh, a poll to, to look at how folks in Atlantic Canada uh, are looking at the carbon tax and specifically looking at the carbon tax after the carve-out for home heating oil that the Trudeau government announced uh, a few weeks ago. And the results that we found when we released the poll this morning shows that 77% of folks in Atlantic Canada want carbon tax relief on home heating for everyone across the country and the polling we've done actually shows that Atlantic Canada as a region is the most against the carbon tax and that Atlantic Canada as a region is not at all accepting the Trudeau government's decision to have one individual carve out for this one form of home heating Uh, so that's the that's the details we have out today 77% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are feeling that way. It's 78% New Brunswick, 74% PEI. But the bottom line is three out of four people polled in the region are saying they're not willing to accept the Trudeau government's carve-out. It's temporary, it's only three years, it doesn't help enough people. And folks are demanding that this home heating carve-out be extended to everyone across the country.
1: I, you know, when we talk about uh, equitable taxation and progressive taxation, I don't disagree with uh, the results of that poll. You know, even when you consider It has not the major impact in Atlantic Canada because somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of our homes are heated by home heating oils and so obviously this is most welcome here. But then you talk about the contrast or the contradiction. When we talk about the numbers of homes in the rest of the country that's heated by natural gas, a much cleaner fuel source when we're talking about emissions and what have you, yet they still pay the carbon tax on that source. So it's the furthest thing from equitable. But I think when Canadians are polled about taxes, they want to pay less anyway. No matter how you phrase the question, no matter what tax we're talking about about and then if we're talking about equitable treatment in this province we are likely going to be paying three times more than the rest of the country regarding clean fuel regulations so they're not hitting the sweet spot when it comes to equity
15: Well, that's exactly right. And the clean fuel regulations, they need to go as well. They're hurting uh, individuals. They're hurting us at the gas pump. And you're right. It's specifically targeting Atlantic Canada as a region. I certainly think that, look, most Canadians don't want to pay more more in tax. And I think folks are going to say that. But we did the numbers across the country. Atlantic Canada as a region is the most Strongly committed to a home heating exemption for everyone across the country, even though, as you said, there's a a high percentage, about 40% of homes in Atlantic Canada, that do use home heating oil and will get this break. I think you also made a very important point about the natural gas. In Ontario, 3% of uh, households use home heating oil. Over half use natural gas. Natural gas is cleaner, and yet the Liberals decide to remove the $300 for the winter approximately carbon tax bill from home heating oil not the 300 hundred dollar bill from natural gas and we've got polls coming out showing that 50 percent of canadians are 200 dollars away from not being able to pay their bills and this carbon tax is going to break their back both on home heating but as you noted as well also through the clean fuel regulations and in addition to that On transportation, everything we get, and you had, uh, I I was listening, you had someone on earlier uh, from the NDP, a future candidate in the next election, uh, and was talking about, um, you know, the price of food. Well, look, the truckers and these trucks, everywhere where you have to get food from the point of production to where it's sold in grocery stores, everything has to be shipped and it's going on trucks that use diesel and you're paying the carbon tax on that as well. So that's helping to inflate the price of groceries. So this is just cascading through the economy
1: insofar as clean fuel regulations that fully implemented uh, uh, at this point anyway but I wonder if we're using the carbon tax as a scapegoat when we talk about grocery prices because I don't know what numbers your association is using but if you look at like for instance I know who you know this guy is uh, uh, economist Trevor Tone, and then Stats Canada and the Bank of Canada when they talk about carbon tax increase as it pertains to inflation the Bank of Canada says about 0.15% when it comes to consumer touch points like groceries the impact is uh, said to be less than One percent. So as opposed to productivity and competition and distribution and the control the big five have, which which controls 80% of the uh, grocery retail market, I think we're letting them off the hook while we talk about an implication that might be around 1%.
15: So uh, the parliamentary budget officer has said it's it's closer to 16%, and there have been conflicting numbers from the Bank of Canada, from the PBO. I think there's no doubt that there's an impact, and and it's just clear common sense you're paying more fuel to get stuff to the stores uh that's automatically going to have play a role as well on farms there's tax on certain uh, farm fuels that over the next seven years the federal government is going to be taxing through carbon taxes a billion dollars on farmers for farm fuel and of course that's going to be passed on in food prices as well. I think you can have a conversation about grocery stores, you can have a conversation about uh, CEOs talking about profits and and the like, but I think it's also very important to recognize if we're paying a billion dollars in carbon taxes on farms over the next seven years, of course that's gonna be passed on to the consumer, and that's gonna cascade through the economy.
1: The issue regarding the contradictory numbers between uh, the Bank of Canada and the PBO and whatnot, I'm pretty sure that comes down to the uh, consideration, we're we're getting numbers to two different questions. That's where a lot of that came in, and I always keep this in front of me because this is important stuff. So the bank was accused of uh, revising their calculations when in fact the 0.15 and the 0.6 are answers to two separate questions. At the Finance Committee meeting, and this is a couple of weeks ago, uh, Governor Macklin reiterated that 0.16 points of the current inflation rate is due to April's carbon tax increase. That is explained in a letter directed to that committee. The governor then estimated the impact of the carbon tax went from $65 a ton to, if the impact went from $65 a ton to zero, that would cut inflation rate by 0.6 points for a year, after which the deflationary impact would disappear. That's from the Bank of Canada. Because I do think that that has been widely misreported, because we had two different numbers. numbers, which is confusing, but they were two different numbers to two different questions.
15: Well, look. I think if you talk to the average family and the average household, grocery prices are up $2,000, and in the last couple of years, folks are paying carbon taxes at the gas pump on home heating. It's impacting food. I think if you talk to uh, pretty well anybody, they would say there's certainly a more than one percent impact of the carbon tax on their bills, whether it's at the gas pump, whether it's on home heating. We're talking about $300 home heating bill in the winter. We're talking about higher 14 cents a liter higher at the gas pump. So. This- that is certainly more of an impact than I think if you ask people out on the street, is the carbon tax only increasing your costs by 0.1%? I think folks would say that's simply not true
1: yeah and not 0.1 but one percent and i mean th- what we perceive look i'm the grocery shopper in my house so i know full well the pain associated with going through the grocery store but i do think in the world of inflationary pressures and carbon tax implication on food we really got to include everything because that's where the truth generally lies is when we get into a detailed comprehensive examination and in the world of competition in this country we've got a problem we simply do we- I'm sorry. I'll, I was going to say
2: I can.
15: I completely agree with you. We have a big competition problem. Uh, we have competition problem in Canada in so many different areas. You know, whether it's uh, cell phone plans, whether it's internet, whether it's phone companies, whether it's grocery stores, and that's been a big problem for many years even the big banks, for example. And so we need absolutely more competition in this country that would help drive prices down. Uh, I completely agree with you. I just think that these are both relevant factors.
1: Yeah, uh, and again, try not to exclude any of the impacts or any of the government policies that impact, whether it be the price of groceries or anything else. I'll add to it the lack of competition in the world of insurance as well. Uh, Jake, good to have you on the show. Anything else you'd like to add this morning?
15: Uh, no, just uh, have a great day. And uh, as I said, 77% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians want to see home heating tax, the carbon tax also is all home heating. So huge majority.
1: Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Jay Goldberg with the Canadian Taxpayers association so we're almost out of time for this morning but i I was going to suggest this to dave off here but when we talk about all these housing concerns and you incorporate the conversation regarding modular homes or double wides or tiny homes or apartment buildings or whatever the case may be affordability is always going to be the really tricky component of any of these government policies and pots of money i wonder where cooperative housing fits in here so I don't know enough about it to really speak to it directly, but we're going to reach out to the folks at the Cooperative Housing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, and the person here in particular is uh, Ross Langer. So. At some point, that's also got to be part of the conversation because there's big benefits to cooperatives, as we know. We've seen some different industries even examining the potential for a cooperative. C N L comes to mind, moving from a not-for-profit to a for-profit co-op for its members. There's a lot of geographical concerns, a lot of technical issues that have to be broached. But in the world of housing, one thing we have not included is cooperatives. So there's lots of different upsides and benefits, and especially when it comes to affordability-related matters. So Dave, let's work on that. See if we can't get Roz uh, for the program tomorrow. So she's with the, uh, she's the property manager for the Cooperative Housing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That should be enlightening. Okay, final check in on the Twitter box for the morning. We're see up online. Follow us there. Aaron is saying, if carbon tax is driving food inflation, why is food inflation higher over the last three years in the United States? Also, most people get back uh, money in the carbon tax rebate. Of course, that's true. And I just gave you the numbers that came from the PBO, the Bank of Canada and Stats Canada, people like Trevor. Tom and whatnot. I think we've kind of taken our eye off the prize for some of the other impact policies and movements. Okay, Dave just passed me this. Outer Ring Road, eastbound at Thorburn Road. Transport truck has broke down. Traffic is stopped. So, please do not go on the Outer Ring Road, eastbound at Thorburn Road. Off-ramp the transport truck is broken down. there in the middle of the road. Okay, final check on the email. We're openline at vocm.com. And yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.